them in in memphis in cleveland in 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 miami we could reach them in libya not recommended for impressionable children oh that was the voice of stephen mccaddy one of our birthday uh fellows tonight in a weird movie that i've never seen but i have to see it we'll talk about that in a little bit Welcome to It Came From Cleveland for February 4th, 2022, where uh, we're broadcasting out of the uh, the snow-covered tundra of Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, it's, it's wretched. It is absolutely wretched. So, uh, but I got the car out of the parking, uh, of the, the driveway today and uh, got my eBay packages to the post office. So I feel good about myself. And... <laughs> And, uh, and of course, welcome uh, to the show. Michelle, uh, you're going to be talking about, oh my gosh, a late great legend of horror cinema later on in the show. Yes, and I had no idea he was six foot five. So, yes, I'll be talking about George Romero. <laughs> yeah, so um, that, it's, that's really exciting because, you know, I'm a huge George Romero fan and uh, I, I can't wait to see what you got. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Joe Santorza also heard on the Tim Cormel show. You have some picks for us tonight, some recommendations of, uh, recent television shows, um, which is always fun to throw in. I do. I do. And, uh, one of them is about, uh, witnesses of a horrific <laughs> tragedy. And, um, the other is about, a an invasion. So, Ooh. Here. Sound, sounds fun i think we'll enjoy yes it. so yes. uh and also i'm happy to say i've only watched one episode so far but i'm happy to say that there are two episodes available now of season two of raised by wolves on hbo max oh yes, my gosh yes and while the they still have lots more bad haircuts in this season joe yeah, they still have those mullets. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> they, they, they got one up. They got like some Prince Valiant bowl cuts too. I know. There's a there's a couple of hip hop guys in there too. I I don't yeah. know. I don't know what the I don't the bun, the bun, <laughs> the man bun. So the man bun <laughs> drives me nuts. Yeah, and uh, last <laughs> but not least, uh, Miles, uh, you're going to be uh, kind of uh, taking a cue from last week where we talked about the hunt for Red October a little bit, and you're going to expound upon. Um, you said the story that inspired, uh, at least part of the book and movie. Uh, yes. Tom Clancy, um, uh, used this story as his inspiration to write the hunt for red October. Nice. Uh, it is a real life incident involving a <laughs> Soviet Navy vessel that, uh, tried to escape. And, wow. Uh, I'm going to tell that story. Yeah. Yeah, real life is often more interesting than uh, you know fantasy. Although Hunt for Red October is an excellent, uh, excellent uh, um, uh, show. 
Uh, can I can I just touch briefly on Boba Fett? Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. While, I, while we're I discussing, I'm not caught up on the. I, I haven't seen the latest episode, but I'm up to like episode five, I think. Book five. Oh, you're ahead of us. I think we just oh. finished three. Yes. Okay. We just we just finished three. So all all I just want to say is, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I mean, um, when when they're twins, you know, like a uh, brother and sister that are lying together naked in public <laughs> being yeah. carried around by their slaves and speaking hot knees does that is that is that hot to anyone else i mean or is it just me and not no you may, maybe ask uh, luke skywalker oh, yeah, all right i'm not interested <laughs> okay i'm just I was, i'm just asking yeah that was pretty creepy canoodling uh of the uh hut twins um yeah and she had a fan too that was that was yeah. sexy Ugh. Uh, so anyway, um, let's uh, moving right along. Um, yeah, so uh, a birthday. This is so almost serendipitous how this happened to me the other night. Uh, I know I have mentioned on this show before. I'm almost certain I've mentioned on the show before that there was a, a repertoire uh, show where where there was a cast of essentially a, a, a cast of characters or a, a, a crew of actors, I should say, that. It, and it was a show from the 90s, and I could not remember what it was. I thought it was a horror anthology, but it's not quite. That's not quite um, right. It was a more of a crime thriller murder anthology. And I could not remember the name of it for the life of me. And I erroneous, erroneously thought Lance Henriksen was in this uh, movie, or in this TV series. And... And I'm looking, um, and uh, I forget how I stumbled upon it, but I, I ran across a picture of Stephen McHattie. I, I don't even remember how I did this, but it was just the other day, and I was so excited. And I, th this actor by the name of Stephen McHattie, who was born February 3rd, 1946, so happy birthday, Stephen McHattie. Uh, he's a Canadian actor. He's been in a lot of stuff. He, uh, uh, well, I'll play a, a, a kind of a recent movie clip of him and some other stuff. But I stumbled upon this, and I was like, th this actor, and I was like, hold on a second. Maybe this guy was in this show and not Lance Henriksen because I, he, you know, he always looked kind of, you know, I, I just didn't realize there were two different people until just like a couple days ago. And lo and behold, separated at birth. Yeah, and they don't even really look that much alike. You know, I mean, when they were younger, yes, maybe a little more, but now not really. Um, but I, I so uh, you know, he's been acting since uh, 1970, and and I, I went to his IMDb uh, or IMDb page, Wikipedia, um, and all that, and I tracked down, and I finally found the name of the series, and I wasn't crazy. And yes, absolutely, uh, this television series was on from, uh, it was uh, from 1991 to 1992, two seasons, total of 22 episodes. It was in syndication. It was done by uh, television legend, uh, late television legend, Stephen J. Cannell, and he served as the host of this show, and it was called Scene of the Crime. Now, mind you, and again, the, the cast was was really cool. A lot of kind of unknowns. Stephen McCaddy is probably the biggest name. 
Uh, but there were other actors, Terry Austin, Kim Coates, uh, Lisa Houle, um, Maxine Miller, Francois Monaghan, um, uh, Sandra Nelson, Robert Paisley, Barbara Parkins. She was only one season. Kim Coates also was only one season. Uh, Olivier Pierre and George uh, Tulietos. I don't know how to say that. Um, but it was it was uh, part of the crime time after prime time uh, late night block, and I remember that. And that was on CBS, so it wasn't it wasn't really uh, syndicated. I think it was syndicated later because it only lasted a couple seasons. But I used to watch this religiously, and I loved seeing different cast members each week take on a different role. You know, like one week somebody's the good cop, you know, next week they're the serial killer, that kind of thing. And uh, you know, I don't even remember really. There's one that I remember. And I think it was called Shock Radio or something like, or no, Stock Radio. I think is what it was called. And I that was probably the first episode I saw, and I think it was the second episode of the first season. And you know, and I, I you know, I've always been into radio. So when there was somebody in a radio station, you know, and you know, there's a murder involved, I'm like, ooh, this is cool. So, so I looked everywhere, everywhere. This series does not exist anywhere that I can find in home media, in streaming, in syndication, anything. And there is there are no overviews of episodes. There's just season one, 10 episodes. Season two, 12 episodes. That's it. The, it I will play you the only audio that I could find on YouTube that exists. Here's the theme song for Scene of the Crime, everybody. And it is so 90s, but it's cool music. And it, when I heard it, it all came flooding back to me, like, you know, the, the feel of the show. go uh music very by poppy yeah yeah very music by uh uh terry frewer i don't know if it's any relation to Ma any relation to matt frewer but uh i just love that theme and it really just came flooding back to me and every time they would show one of the actors on the show in the in the opening credits it would show them in a different costume from like different episodes and they even had like little behind the scenes shots of like you know somebody coloring their beard or applying makeup or getting their hair done or something like that. And then, uh, of course, Stephen J. Cannell sitting in the director's chair, getting ready to, 
uh, you know, explain the the premise of the episode, much like Rod Serling would do, uh, or, or Alfred Hitchcock would do. Um, really, really cool show, and I am going to do everything in my power to to contact CBS <laughs> and say, <laughs> "Where the hell is this show? You this the world needs to see this. It was an amazing television series, uh, you know, and and there is." Seriously, if you Google Scene of the Crime 1991 TV or something like that, there there's a couple, there, there's like one website that does have like titles of the episodes, but it doesn't have like plot, and it's a weird website too, and it's like, oh, I almost don't trust it, <laughs> you know? Um, but there's no articles written about it anywhere that I can find. Um, no, you know fan sites or anything like that just nothing and i think that is a cry in shame this is like a real gem of uh, in, in a in, and again a, a show that had the same cast that you know maybe even was a little bit of inspiration for something like american horror story where not every episode but every season different cast mem- members come back as different characters mm-hmm. So it's a fascinating premise to me, and I really believe that this is an absolute lost uh, classic of of early '90s TV. So, does any do any of you have any memory of this show? I do not. I don't. I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. No, no, it's uh, definitely not coming to me. Yeah, you know, it, there's a mm-hmm. a, a guy from um, from the Man in the High Castle was on that series. Oh, so okay. what year did it come out? 91 and 92 were the only two years it ran. Two seasons. Right. So There's a guy called Sebastian Roach, an actor. Okay. And he played a Nazi. He played one of the Nazi higher-ups in Man in the High Castle. Okay. So, and uh, I see he was, he was on that show as one of the casts. Cool, cool. So, yeah, so that's... Uh, but, the, the, you know, I, I really wanted to do research and dig in, and I was talking to you guys on Wednesday, and, and that's all I could find. That's it. <laughs> you know, uh, but I, I at least appreciate the sense of validation that I figured out the name of the show, and it, and it wasn't Lance Henriksen. And I think I was kind of mixing up because, um, but that show came later, Millennium came later. But I kept wanting to believe that Millennium was the show or something like that. But it was scene of the crime. So, uh, so yeah, it, 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 mystery solved. And, <clears throat> uh, and, and yeah, there, there it is. So Stephen McCaddy. Uh, and, and he's been in some other really interesting things. And I found another movie, again, completely out of print. Nowhere. I can't even find the trailer for it. Somebody has like four different movie clips for it. But this is a, a movie called Salvation from 1987 with Stephen McCaddy as a sleazy television uh, as a sleazy televangelist, and it came out right after the Jimmy Swaggart in the Jim Baker scandals. Oh, oh, he would do great in one of those roles. Yeah, and see it. And this movie, it was an early film by Viggo Mortensen and his then wife Exine Shervenka mm. from the L.A. punk rock band X. So, um. And uh, and th- this was so uh, so surprising to find. 
I did find one little audio clip of, uh, well, it's like a two-minute clip of Stephen McCaddy as the sleazy televangelist. I didn't get the name because I can't find, uh, um, you know, enough information on the movie. Uh, well, actually, I should probably look it up now. I didn't really have time because I found it beforehand. But let me see if I can find information. But here's the clip. This is like one of the opening sequences. It's a little rough in the language. Uh, it's it's mildly, you know, racist, uh, to say the least, um, uh, towards uh, Jewish people. So my apologies to any Jewish people listening. But this is a black comedy satire from 1987. And it is not meant in any seriousness as an attack. It's meant to lay bare what kind of hypocrites and scumbags these televangelists in the 80s were. So here's uh, here's that clip. Did you know that New York City is the least Christian city in the United States? It's a fact. The United States government census 1980. Christians ranked a distant fourth. Number three, Catholics. Now we can only hope that these people who are so close to being saved We'll find the true path, the only path to heaven through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the number two religion in New York City, the number two religion is the Jews, those bankers. There are more Jews in New York City than there are in the Holy Land. And there are more banks in New York City than there are any place else in the world. Now the number one religion, the number one religion in New York City is atheism. Atheism, worship of the devil. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, again, it, you know, it's, it, and if what they said about Jews is not true as well. Um, yeah, so. they totally off base on that. But I am in agreement about Catholics. They are the worst. What? No. <laughs> well, we won't take the Irish. Um, <laughs> but uh, Reverend Randall is his name. Uh, and, and I found the Wikipedia article. I, I But... What's really fascinating about this is New Order did a lot of the soundtrack uh, work oh. for this, and um, and uh, yeah, "Touched by the Hand of God" was uh, recorded for the soundtrack "Salvation." Um, so that uh, that song was a single that was released from this. Arthur Baker, uh, which is pretty fun. Um, and, uh, let me see, uh, uh, Cabaret Voltaire. I don't, I'm not familiar with them, but English uh, music group. Uh, but anyway, um, but yeah, so this was, uh, and apparently this was released on VHS, but has never been released on DVD. Um, so this is kind of another rare thing with Stephen McCaddy. I, I, I got to start a movement here, <laughs> but I mean, it, <laughs> 
it has Viggo Mortensen for God's sake. You'd figure that some somebody out yeah, there well. wants to you know do that. So, um, I don't know if he's real keen on uh, you know. I don't think he had a very healthy relationship with Exine Chervenka though, because uh, she. I actually had an interaction with Exine Chervenka on her YouTube YouTube channel once, and shortly thereafter, she she removed a bunch of videos because she was doing Sandy Hook truther shit. Oh, oh lovely. Yeah. And she like responded to me on a couple things and then she was like, I'm just asking questions. And I was like, you're, you're just, you know, you're just making things worse is what you're doing. You know? And, and I was like, this is, you know, it's like, I, I had a lot of respect for you and this is awful what you're doing. And, um, you know, I'm just like, just do something creative because this is destructive. Um, and, uh, but yeah, she, and she fucking tore down all that stuff. Sorry. I'm I'm breaking my F-bomb rule. Um, but no, this is a really cool looking movie and I want to see it, uh, because anything that makes fun of Jimmy Swaggart or in Jim Baker is great, you know? Jim Baker's still out there slinging his foods, his his slop troughs to everybody too. Fleecing that sheep. Incredible. So, um, another interesting thing, and I, this completely flew by me too because I think I think still thought it was Lance Henriksen uh, when the Watchmen movie came out. Uh, the Zack Snyder Watchmen movie. The character of Hollis Mason, who was the original Night Owl in that movie was played by Stephen McCaddy, who uh, I found a, a deleted scene of a conversation he was having with Sally Jupiter, his former teammate from the Minutemen, uh, the 1940s crime buster team. And, um, and of course, you know, the, the, um, the character of uh, Night Owl was kind of a pastiche for the character of Blue Beetle, um, uh, and Blue Beetle was kind of a Batman ripoff. Uh, so this was interesting because, uh, this took place right after, um, the newer Night Owl and Silk Spectre. The newer Night Owl was, was, uh, he's not a relation to Hollis Mason. He just, you know, took over the, the mantle when the original retired. But the, um, Sally Jupiter's daughter is Silk Spectre, uh, and I don't remember what Sally Ju. I think, yeah, it was Silk Spectre 1 and 2 were the characters. So after there's a tenement fire in uh, The Watchmen, and they decide to go out, well, uh, earlier in the movie, they take Owlman's old owl ship on uh, night patrol, basically, and they see this fire, and they go in and they just start rescuing people with the owl ship. And Hollis Mason sees this on TV and decides to call his old friend Sally Jupiter to talk about it. And uh, here you go. Hello. The Russians are finding Sally. Hollis. Yes, Hollis Mason. Jesus. <laughs> All this time you've had my number and you wait until our sunset years to use it. Well, it seemed like a special occasion, Sal. The TV is reporting there's a tenement fire last night. There were trapped people rescued by airship. And uh, they say the pilot 
was uh, dressed like an owl. And it seems he had a sexy woman with him. Lori? My daughter, Lori? <laughs> I can't get over Lori back in costume. Maybe she'll finally thank me for getting her started in the first place. You know, Sal, from the sound of your voice, you're sounding younger than ever. Oh, why bless you, Hollis. But that's probably just senility. <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you, Sal. But uh, someone's knocking. Well, don't get too misty-eyed thinking about old times. <laughs> hmm. You take care now, Hollis. Oh, you too. Bye. Bye. Yeah, hold your horses. All right, so there. here's the thing. That was a gang, that uh, a, a group of gang members who knocked on his door thinking, you know, okay, so the, the other night owl takes up the mantle again. Hollis Mason had written a book called, like, Behind the Cowl or something like that. And they don't realize that uh, the other night owl is the active night owl and the retired one had nothing to do with it. So basically they come by the house and they murder him and say, you should have stayed retired. And it's pretty brutal, but Hollis Mason does not go out without, go down without a fight. And there's a really, really kind of cool montage of him like throwing punches at the gang members. And then he's envisioning t the times of, you know, when he was punching out like Nazi villains and, you know, fighting ma an evil magician and, uh, you know, just all kinds of other uh, interesting uh, cinematography went into that. But I didn't want to play anymore because it was just kind of a brutal beating and uh, it wouldn't have played well on radio. <laughs> so, but uh, powerful scene, powerful scene from that movie. Um, there's a lot of gr great moments from Zack Snyder's uh, Watchmen. And uh, Stephen McCaddy in there, not Lance Henriksen. <laughs> and you put a little fun tidbit in there, Michelle. Uh, was that from Wikipedia? From IMDb. IMDb. Go ahead and uh, read that for everybody. But Lance Henriksen bears a striking resemblance to actor Stephen McCaddy, with whom he is often confused. They even once played twin brothers on an episode of the television series Beauty and the Beast in 1987 called snow <laughs> that's amazing that is amazing i want to see if i can find that episode now <laughs> that's so cool um wow they paid, played twin brothers that is wild i wonder i wonder if they have a a, a friendship o over you know this because they're almost the same i think they're just about the same age too Henriksen might be a I little bit older yeah they might have some camaraderie with each of them being mistaken for the other so often you know yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, that's so funny. Um, but uh, yeah, they, I think another two that get used to get it all the time was uh, Elijah Wood and Toby Toby McGuire. Because that doesn't I, surprise me. I, I saw I, I saw some interviews back in you know the day about them saying, yeah, people always are like, hey, Elijah Wood, you're great. <laughs> Toby McGuire, you're great. So, and remember the whole Chris controversy. With, with uh, Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Chris uh, Pratt, Chris, 
uh, Chris Pine. Yeah. Oh yeah, Chris. <laughs> Brad, yeah. It was the whole thing, the whole controversy about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say, mistaking uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne for Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, oh yeah. God, <laughs> that was bad. That was so bad. That that bozo. So anyway, um, I have a trailer break coming up here for everybody, and this one is kind of fun. This one spans 1979 to 1990. Uh, coming up, uh, we have a classic uh, trailer that everybody here knows and loves, The Life of Brian, because Terry Jones had his birthday this week. Um, and, of course, uh, we have uh, Brandon Lee, who also uh, uh, had his birthday. Laser Mission, everybody. And oh boy, <laughs> a movie with and it's such a great 80s sounding trailer. And uh, Sherilyn Fenn in a movie that I need to see because she has her birthday this week, too. Uh, Sherilyn Fenn in Meridian Kiss of the Beast, which seems kind of like a, a Phantom of the Opera meets um, uh, Beauty and the Beast meets kind of a, a Nightbreed kind of movie. It looks really fun, and I'll get some fun facts on that for you when we come back. And I'll have some other fun audio from the life of Brian, too. But here we go. Here's uh, our uh, trailer break for everybody. Everyone knows the glorious story of the child born in a faraway manger. Well, this isn't that story. This is Monty Python's all-new Life of Brian. They call Brian. He was born into the golden age of Roman rule. Do we have any crucifixions today? 139, sir. Special celebration. It was a time of miracles. I was blind and now I can see. Friendly persuasion and gracious invaders. But there was just one thing on everyone's mind. Sex, 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 that's all they think about it. <laughs> In those days, getting stoned wasn't against the law. It was the law. And things looked bad for the people of Jerusalem. Still a few crosses left. Until Brian dropped in. He was a born leader. Brothers, brothers, we should be struggling together. We are. A potential martyr. What would they do to me? Oh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah. First offense. And his mother's joy. Are you telling them? They think I'm the Messiah, Mum. The Messiah! There's no Messiah in here. And now, it's up to Brian to deliver a despairing nation from the throes of oppression. <laughs> Tough luck, Jerusalem. This is the life of Brian. Just when you thought you were saved. It's Monty Python's Life of Brian. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a very naughty boy.
place the Romans. Terrific. From Turner Home Entertainment. Can I ask you a personal question? You carry a gun and you're not afraid to use it. You can outdrive the best of them. Who are you and who are you working for? Agent Michael Gold has a mission on his mind. You didn't tell me who he was or why he was so important. The enemy on his tail. Alyssa! Two people blew this operation from the start. And this woman on his back. It's not my idea of a dream thing. This unlikely couple is out to recover the ultimate weapon. Laser mission. Laser. Espionage. Execution is a dawn tomorrow. With the Virbeck diamond and my laser, I can create a nuclear weapon. They give it to you with both barrels in this international thriller packed full of action and intrigue. You kill me with your stupid... Laser mission. I see things, and I feel things that I can't explain. Seduced by a dream. This feeling is so powerful. What we did was unforgivable. I think something terrible may have happened. Possessed by a dark power. I need you to love me. Sometimes he's so evil. Do you understand what you've seen? I'm frightened. She will awaken a curse of passion. Oh. I will become a creature. It's a superstition, a ghost story. To break this curse, the creature must be killed by the Lady of the Castle. I love him. Now she must destroy something that isn't real. Kill this beast. No. To save a love that isn't human. Starring Sherilyn Fenn from Two Moon Junction. It's just a dream. It's just a dream. We've been doing our, our publicity. Are you the Judean People's Front? Fuck off. What? Judean People's Front. Well, the People's Front of Judea. Judean yeah. People's Front. Come <laughs> Can I join your group. Now, piss off. I didn't want to sell this stuff. It's only a job. I hate the Romans as much as anybody. Are you sure? Oh, dead sure. I hate the Romans already. Listen, if you wanted to join the PFJ, you'd have to really hate the Romans. I do. Oh, yeah? How much? A lot. Right, you're in. Listen. The only people we hate more than the Romans are the 
fucking Judean people's front. Yeah. 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 And the Judean popular people's front. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the people's front of Judea. Yeah. Splitters. Yes. What? The people's front of Judea. Splitters. We're the people's front of Judea. Oh. I thought we were the popular front. People's front. Whatever happened to the popular front? He's over there. Splitter! Splitter. <laughs> anyway, welcome back. Uh, I accidentally started playing the wrong clip there. But uh, don't worry, we'll get to that one too. So yeah, welcome back uh, to It Came From Cleveland for uh, February 4th, 2022. And uh, yeah, so uh, Michelle, uh, thank you for the help with Stephen McCaddy and Lance Hendrickson. Um, and, and I, and now I must see that episode of Beauty and the Beast. Yes, me too. I have to look it up sometime. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, welcome back, Miles. Uh, that was a little bit of fun there. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and again, I, I'm going to have to bang, uh, you know, bang the drum at CBS and get them to release that damn show now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it does sound interesting. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it just uh, uh, and again, Joe, you're a big fan of American Horror Story, so I'm sure you you wouldn't mind uh, uh, binging a, a whopping 22 episodes. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, do that in a weekend. Um, so, <laughs> but, I've done it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, anyway, so welcome back to everybody. And yeah, I uh, a few, few years back on my old talk show uh, because this is one of my favorite movies of all time, The Life of Brian. Uh, was directed, of course, by Terry Jones, um, and in uh, largely written by him as well, uh, and the other Pythons. Um, but this is uh, this is an audio clip here uh, from a documentary about the life of Brian, and I, I picked a couple out because there was a lot of controversy that surrounded the release of the film, and I know I did like an hour on this way back in the day on Turn Up the Night. Um, and, uh, Joe, you were probably on that show too. So, um, and, uh, but yeah, in 2019, it was the 40th anniversary uh, of this. And so I called together all this fascinating information, but it was, you know, censors were coming after it. Uh, there were, you know, people in the church were coming after it. Um, uh, studios were dumping them, all kinds of stuff. But this, you know, and, and there's some interesting audio I have uh, related to that and how the film actually got saved. But this is uh, the first clip, though, about how the story came about. We've been doing our, our publicity for Grail. It's sort of brought us back together again. And I think we must have felt, well, the Grail's going down well. Maybe we should do another movie. The moment was really in, in, in Amsterdam, uh, one of our a drunken pub crawl one evening. And, and that was Eric when he said, you know, wouldn't it be great? Let's do Jesus Christ, Lust for Glory. And you know, I fell off the chair because that was so outrageous and wonderful and spot on. My reaction to the idea of doing a Bible story was slightly disappointing because... Um, uh, I always thought the costumes were so boring. <laughs> I remember going to Church of England school, every time we had to do a paint a biblical scene, you know, you thought, oh, it's everybody just in long robes. It's not very interesting. So uh, that was Terry Jones at the end of that one, so I picked that. But, yeah, so uh, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the lust for glory uh, was the original concept. <laughs> but it evolved, and, you know, it became the story that we're uh, seeing now. 
and um and the the uh Joe do you know who saved uh the life of Brian and got it onto the screen big screen I do not I'll tell you this he was a musician he was British and he was famous for being a guitarist in a band of four members Oh let me see and his Could guitar it? was known to gently weep Oh, that's right. You're not t- talking about George Harrison. I absolutely am. Check this out. It was a mortal blow when EMI pulled out because, um, you know, we, we had no other option at the time. I actually thought the thing wasn't going to happen. I remember I accepted a role uh, working with Peter Sellers in Vienna doing a remake of Prisoner of Zender. A race to find finance for the film ensued, with Eric Idle and producer John Goldstone departing for America. Eric Idle said, well, you know, the one person that has always been a big Python fan is, is George Harrison, and he lives in the Hollywood Hills, and um, we should really go and see him and talk to him about it. And I think we sent a script ahead of time for him to read. And then, anyway, a miracle. A miracle happened. A miracle. Say, George <laughs> of Harrison, um, <laughs> thanks to Eric Idle, um, heard about the project and said, yes, you know, I'll... I'll I'd like to do it, you know. What we did was um, we pawned my house and the office in London. This is George Harrison. uh, To get a bank loan. And that was a bit (laughs) nerve-wracking. George put up all the money himself, and in doing so set up the company Handmade Films that would go on to make Mona Lisa and a private function, amongst others. And so, several months later than planned, in September 1978, the 41-day shoot began in Monastir in Tunisia. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Didn't so, George Harrison have some other f- was involved with? Was it NeverEnding Story? I don't know, but I know he was attached for a while to um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain. But he didn't like the idea of having a scene where he pissed himself, so he he didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess not. So I I know that. uh, You know, he's like, I'm not doing a scene where I I piss myself. I'll do a lot of other stuff, but I'm not I'm not doing that. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, I I, I'm not sure if Never Ending Story was something he was involved in or not. Uh, I guess I don't know why that. Yeah, I I don't know why that that just is rolling around. There's a lot of things rolling. Oh yeah, yeah. I got a lot of for some reason. A lot of, <laughs> yeah, a lot of things rattling around. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So pretty interesting little uh, bit of history there, Michelle. Very much so. Yes. Yeah, and uh, and you know we uh, we you know if you like history, we got lumps of it around back. We, we got lumps of it around the back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And I don't think it would be complete if we didn't, uh, Miles, if we didn't play Brian's speech. Uh, oh, yeah. From the life of Brian. So uh, here we go. Please, please, please listen. I've got one or two things to say. Look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourself. You're all individuals! Yes, we're all individuals! You're all different! Yes, we're 
I'm not. <laughs> you all got to work it out for yourself! Yes! We've got to work it out for ourselves! Exactly! Yeah, <laughs> that's the point. I'm not. <laughs> you know, I, I have a very, very fond family memory of uh, sitting at the at dinner table and having a post-dinner conversation with um, Susan's uh, dad and uh, Sue and her brother, and uh, and and for some reason I I brought up you know because some. Something in real life was applicable to the the Brian speech, you know, where we're all you're all different. I'm not, you know, and and I, I, I and this is a movie that Susan's dad never would have watched because he was pretty, you know, pretty straight laced Christian conservative, um, but a good man, uh, you know, good man. And I loved him. But um, he, uh, I was relating this story and I was like, you know, and when I got to the punchline of I'm not. He he just snickered so so good and and he was just like that's funny, and I'm like all right well you know I'm not gonna force you to watch this movie but you know that's that's good comedy that's great comedy, um, and uh, so that that's, that'll always be a fond fond memory uh, for the rest of my days, um, but uh, but yeah this movie again it's in one it's one of my top ten favorite movies. Uh, along with the Holy Grail, actually three Python, uh, uh, Brazil being my top favorite movie was made by Terry Gilliam and starred Michael Palin. Uh, well, co-starred Michael Palin. Uh, so, you know, there are three, three movies there that are, uh, you know, in my top 10 movies of all time. And that, yeah, Life of Brian is, uh, uh, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is when I first saw the Life of Brian, I was pretty young, and I had just seen uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I watched probably a hundred times, at least. Uh, and you know, it's one of those you know movies I know I can you know say the lines along with you know the 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 movie, um, and uh, uh, mostly not not like Plan Nine from Outer Space. That one has simpler dialogue. I can do that one inside and out. Um, but uh, this one, it took a little bit of time to grow on me. It, it did, you know, because I think a lot of the humor in it was much more subtle. And being, you know, a teenager, I wasn't quite absorbing it, uh, you know, the right way. And, you know, it took a, a couple of years of me going back and rewatching it because I would always rewatch all the Python stuff, Meaning a Life, you know, all that. Um, and, uh, but this one, you know, it, it really, it has a lot of really subtle, nuanced, uh, you know, humor that a teenage mind isn't going to get, especially like the people's front of Judea until you start seeing things like that in real life. Because what really got me to appreciate that scene more than anything was when there was all that crazy infighting with, you know, um, the tea party and, you know, you know, neoconservatives and, you know, all that stuff. And, and that was just like, oh, wow. And now I see it on the left, which is hysterical because, you know, it's like, you know, uh, uh, the, the, there's the leftists who hate liberals, you know, and, and we're liberals and we're like, but we, 
we we should be friends. They're like, no, splitters, you know. <laughs> Fuck off. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so anyway, that was um, uh, an interesting. Um, uh, you know, a way to, to, uh, to grow, uh, you know, to, to mentally grow and appreciate a movie like that is, is, you know, it, it makes it that much more precious to me. I think if that makes sense. I don't know if anybody's ever had yeah. like a similar experience with a movie as you, you know, get older, you, you're like, Oh, okay. You know, not, not necessarily like you finally got it. But you're like, oh wow, this applies. That that is so much like this scene from this movie, you know, kind of thing. So I I was a bit young for this movie. Um, I have seen it. I I I think of it not fondly, but the one that got me that uh, I went to that it was protested heavily mm-hmm. was the Last Temptation of Christ with Will. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, for me it was. Um... Well, I'm going to show my age now, but it was uh, Casablanca. The mm-hmm. scene in Rick's Cafe American, the first scene, yeah, with all the all all the things going on in the cafe it was like the crossroads of every bad person in Casablanca. Reminded me of the tavern scene in Space uh, Star uh, Wars. Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. And I always thought he, George Lucas must have looked at Casablanca, that scene in Casablanca, and used that. Could very well be because it was, it was a trading post for all kinds of nefarious things. Yeah, a hive of scum and villainy. You'll never find yes, a yes. great hive of scum <laughs> and villainy. Never find. <laughs> uh, I can I can oblige with that audio clip. Uh, just gotta let my poor little computer think uh, real quick. There, it, oh, here it is. You'll never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah, I'm sh- gambling. I'm shocked. Um, shocked, shocked, shocked. I say, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So, um, uh, but anyway, uh, the, I do have a couple other quick movie recommendations related to birthdays. Um, and uh, Michelle, we talked about this the other day. Uh, since Sherilyn Fenn, uh, I played the Meridian uh, trailer. I have another trailer. It's a little bit shorter. Um, it's for Boxing Helena from 1993. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, and this all this movie also stars Bill. Fuck you, asshole. Paxton. <laughs> so, so here you go. I miss him. I do too. An erotic dream. What's your name? She's Helena. From which he cannot awaken. A dark obsession. You're everything to me. You're nothing to me. He cannot control. Nothing to me. You had the faintest idea how to make me feel good. Make me feel good. What is it going to take, Nick, for you to realize I don't want anything to do with you? She is a woman he will do anything to possess. You have done a very bad thing. Anything. You should see what he's done to me. I had to operate here in the lab. This is unheard of. Why isn't she in the hospital? 
I took care of it, Alan. What about your life? I love her, Alan. Beyond love. Take her. Beyond obsession. Take her. There hides something beyond reason. So when somebody said that we were going to be watching uh, this movie when my friends rented it back in the early 90s, they were like, we got Boxing Helena. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to see a movie about a boxer. Not that type of box. No, no, no. And uh, I'm not sure, but this movie did not have me in pieces. Um, Uh And I don't think it costs an arm and a leg to rent. Uh, but I won't spoil it for you. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's messed well, up. It is messed up. Um, think outside the box, then. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, wow. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you won't run away from this one. Uh, anyway, Tennessee, what are you doing? She didn't have a lake to stand on anyway. Oh, gosh. Gosh, Tennessee, what are you doing? You can't have that. He's decided it's time to wake up and annoy me. So I guess that was a, a a Second Amendment movie, the right to bear arms. Oh, yeah. So anyway, uh, I guess Joe Joe's either seen it or knows the plot. So, uh, um, but uh, uh, all right. Uh, one other quickie I want to play. I'm going to save the last one for the end because it's a '70s movie, and the last two movies we're going to talk about are sci-fi '70s movies. Uh, in the last half hour. But this one, great cast, also a birthday this week. The late, uh, amazing Farrah Fawcett, formerly Farrah Fawcett Majors. Uh, who, she was married to Lee Majors at one point. Uh, of course, everybody remembers her from Charlie's Angels and, you know, the posters and the rugs and the beach towels. <laughs> um, and uh, But this is a movie, I don't know if anybody else has seen it. It's a really great, creepy sci-fi movie. From 1980, starring uh, uh, Kirk Douglas, Farrah Fawcett, and Harvey Keitel. It is called, and, and a really weirdo robot, it's called Saturn 3. And by the way, Hart, somebody dubbed Harvey Keitel's voice in this movie. He They must not have liked his voice because they dubbed it. It's so weird, but uh, here it is, Saturn 3. isolated sector of our solar system suspended in orbit around the sixth planet from our sun lies a distant outpost a technologically perfect world where mistakes are impossible because the impossible is unthinkable it is called Saturn 3 year for 22 days, a solar eclipse plunges this outpost into shadow lock. Total darkness. All communication is terminated. This year, the inhabitants of Saturn 3 are about to experience the unthinkable. 
nightmare so perfect it could only have been made by man. Captain, Major, this is my partner. There are only four inhabitants on Saturn III. One of them is not human. budget sci-fi movie it is icky it is creepy and it is uh, very well acted um but the I, I looked it up and harvey Keitel's voice was dubbed by a guy named roy dotris and i guess the story goes that Keitel refused to go back and loop his voice during the post-production so dotris 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 was brought in to dub the all of his dialogue so Harvey Keitel, he's on the screen, but that's never his voice in the movie. So weird. Oh, wow. Because Harvey Keitel has such a distinctive voice, you know? Hmm. I mean, just looking at that that clip from Reservoir Dogs, he's a good kid, you know? You can just hear his voice, <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, a great, great movie. I remember seeing that when I was a kid, and it just freaked me the hell out. Um, that movie and a movie around the same time called Android, uh, with Klaus Kinski, ugh, Klaus oh, yes. Kinski just, yes, Klaus yes, yes. Kinski just always freaked me out when I was a kid. <laughs> yes. So, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. He's not too bizarre. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Is it, have any of you guys seen Saturn three? I have. I, I have. have. Yes. I've seen it. Okay. You guys all Long like it? Long time ago, but yeah. Nice. So... Uh, but yeah, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I either have listed or sold my copy of, uh, the DVD cause I had the first edition, uh, DVD of that. And, um, and yeah, so I don't know. I'll have to look and see if it's in the store. We'll see. But anyway, we're, we we got to get going to the break right now. Uh, when we come back, Miles is going to tell us the true story of the hunt for red October, right? Yes, the, the military incident that inspired it. All right, sounds good. And uh, we'll and then uh, later on we'll get some recommendations from Joe, a little bit of history on the film legend uh, George Romero. I'll have some bonus George Romero trailers in the next segment as well. Uh, Adam's taking the night off. Uh, he had a, His heater broke, I guess. 
Um, so that's not good. Uh, so so he yeah, had something to... happened to his front door or something too. Oh so. dear lord! <laughs> so um, yeah. Uh, but uh, take care. What take care of all that? That's crazy. I don't know what I'd do without uh, without heat right now up here. But anyway, we'll be right back with lots more. Um, uh, my shit. Uh, what's the name of the show? It came from Cleveland right after this. <laughs> We've got lumps of it around the back. It's going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last. The real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish hunter. Something evil. Let me tell you something else, Buster. You're not my idea of a dream thing. Asshole! That's Mr. Asshole you. Not recommended for impressionable children. I had to get that line from Laser Mission. <laughs> That's Mr. Asshole to you. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, hello, Michelle. Hello, hello. And uh, Joe. Still here. Excellent. And uh, that's Mr. Asshole to you, Joe. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And that's frozen, frozen asshole to you. <laughs> yeah, really, really. And uh, and Miles, all right, last but not least, uh, our resident uh, historian and war buff. Uh, let's find out about the real story behind the hunt for Red October. Yes, so there was an incident back on November 9th of 1975. So easily within, uh, I mean, within my lifetime. Yeah, I was 10? No, mm-hmm. 7. I was only 7 years old. Wow. When this happened. So, um, what had happened is this, uh, in order for Tom Clancy to be inspired by this, there, it was a, a story that was, and in college, some other student wrote a thesis on this incident for his master's. And Tom Clancy found this thesis and took it and used it to write uh, The Hunt for Red October, which mm-hmm. uh, became a very successful book and effectively launched Tom Clancy into the uh, you know master storyteller uh, that he uh, became. So what happened on November 9th of 1975? So there is a Russian destroyer, and it was called the Storozovoy. And this was an anti-submarine destroyer. It was designed uh, to hunt down enemy subs at, at range, you know, but, uh, back in world war two hunting, uh, destroyers meant having to get up in there on top of them and drop old school ordnance, like depth charges or hedgehog munitions. And, uh, nowadays, I mean, in modern times with torpedo, the advance in torpedoes being guided and that kind of stuff, it, it was just uh, a nightmare scenario. So anyway, th- this, this destroyer, it was state of the art. It was only eighteen months old. Mm-hmm. That's how. That's how. Re- how new this ship was. So, it was the latest and greatest of Soviet. Uh, excuse me. Technology. 
that uh, that <laughs> went on a strange and interesting journey. So, about Soviet um, command structure. So the ships have a captain, and they have an executive officer. Think of uh, you know like. Uh, Jonathan Frakes' character in, in Star Trek. Riker. You know, the, yeah. first off, the first off. Riker, thank you. And um, there is also a Zompolit. The Zompolit is a carryover from back during World War II when the Soviet Union had commissars. And if anyone's seen those old World War II movies that involve Russian troops, the commissar is the guy that stood behind all the other troops and shot people that wanted to retreat. So the Zampolit was the political officer. And they are the ones that, they and they were third in command. They were kind of like outside the command structure. So there's the captain, the executive officer, then the Zampolit is third in command. And he, and he answers to a totally different group of people. So this Storovoy, the uh, the Storozavoy ship had a uh, Zampolit named Zablin. And he, there's two, two versions of the story about what he was doing. One version is that he was just up and going to defect to the West. The other version is he was going to go and create a, a moment in the Soviet Union that because he was displeased with the way that the Communist Party had was spending so much money on military and was and wasn't doing political reforms, uh, he 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 was a true patriot under this version of it, and he was going trying to stir things up. Um. Point of context, this is a time when uh, Leonid Brezhnev was in charge of uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the fir first secretary. And, uh, yeah, this is this is big-time Cold War stuff. Cold War lasted for a long time for you youngsters <laughs> out there. It was, it was a hell of a time before the Berlin Wall fell. Anyway, so Zoblin had it in his mind that he was going to hijack the ship. And he got the executive officer, second in command, to join him. And what he did um, on this particular night, it was the 50th anniversary of uh, like the Great Revolution uh, 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 is, is celebrated in the Soviet Union. So uh, there's this, you know, parades and people showing up and their ships are like put so people can come on and, you know, it, it, uh, be like, you know, like a museum or show off the uh, military hardware, blah, blah, blah. It's a big deal. And so the thought was that in this mass confusion, when everyone's sort of like involved in these celebrations, that was the perfect time to steal the ship. And so he went to the captain of the ship, and I don't have the name, forgive me, but he went to the captain and he expressed a concern like, hey, um, there's a lot of officers down in the sonar room and they're a little excessively drunk. You might want to, you know, um, oh, I'll, I'll get to, I'll get to another point. So the captain's like, oh, okay. So he, the captain, having no reason not to believe this guy, goes down there, enters into this, uh, you know, sonar room 
and gets locked in. Oops. <laughs> That's it. Just boop. They're locked in. And apparently the, the, the Zablin guy just basically said, sorry, there was no other way. When we get to our destination, you can decide your own fate. That, that was where it, and so now, so now the, the mutiny is full on, right? So they, there are 15 other officers on the ship and they are all brought together with, uh, you know, the executive officer, him and uh, of these 15 officers, they basically asked them and said, all right, this is what's going down. We are going to take this ship and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Who wants to join? Eight of the 15 decided to join the other seven were sent down into the sonar room to join their captain. Wow. Yeah. So that's, uh, <laughs> so, um, at this point there, uh, the Z- uh, Zablin gets on the open mic of the ship, the, the broadcast, and he starts talking to the crew and talking about how the, Communist Party has failed them, blah, blah, blah. Now, the thing about Zampolid officers, they are all, you know, they're the political officer. Yeah. And um, they were, they're actually well-liked by the crew because they're more engaging. They're just chatting, talking, you know, getting a feel and making, they're kind of, you know, it's not like the commissar days where they would be, um, you know, like, oh, you're retreating. I'm going to shoot you. Boom. No, no, they're, they were more of a, you know, hey, let's talk, you know, that because that, they were trying to push the pro-communist party line, you know, the, the dedication to the, to the Soviet Union, you know, but they were well-liked by the crew. That's just, you know, it was a, it's a stark difference compared to the commissars of old. So he gets um, it, the crew pretty much just like, all right, and so they get behind him and they start going. Now, one sailor, or possibly more, does not. And in the confusion of this ship uh, leaving le- leaving the port, slips into the into the water, and and swims to land to uh, report, you know, and, and report that the ship's been mutinied, stolen. Now, mind you, this sailor is doing this in November in the Baltic Sea. Ooh. That's cold <laughs> but he survives so um zablin is uh, is essentially relying on his surprise situation to give him a head start because he let's let's go under the theory that he's trying to escape to sweden let's go with okay. that theory it's a 5 hour sail uh, and so he's he's making for you know using the element of surprise and slipping out. He doesn't even turn the radar on. He's just going and gone. So the sailor that slipped into the water, he makes it to land, gets to a road, and he tries to wave down vehicles to pick him up so he can go and report that you know hey, ship's been stolen, right? None of the vehicles would stop and pick him up because they thought he was just some bum or a drunk sailor. And they're like, no, we're not picking you up, you know, because he just got pulled himself out of the ocean. Looks like hell, I'm sure. And so he had to walk and he finally gets to a phone booth. He manages to get hold of the duty officer at the naval base, right? And the Navy, it tells them basically like, hey, the store has been mutinied. It's being stolen. He's not believed. 
the, the executive officer's like, yeah, we're like, whatever. He thinks it's a prank call or just a drunken sailor trying to get a free ride. <laughs> and so they ignore him. And so he's like, oh, and he just keeps on going. Finally, he gets to the base and starts getting attention, you know, people paying attention to him, and they're still not believing him. They're trying to raise the store of Savoy and mm. not able to. And there's a rear admiral there. He's not buying the story. You know, he's like, you're full of shit. You know, it's just like there, there is no freaking way a ship is being stolen, whatever. And then over the emergency frequency <laughs> of, of the, uh, I, I guess, of the Soviet Navy or what have you. I know I wrote this down. Oh, there we go. Uh, a broadcast is, is is made out over the open frequency, uh, the emergency frequency, and it says, "Mutiny aboard Storozovoy, we're heading for open sea." So whoever set, sent that message, it might have been a sailor, one of the you know crew that did not agree with the ship being stolen. Maybe yeah. it was one of the seven officers escaped or untied himself or something and got to the radio room. But uh, now at that point. The uh, Soviet military starting to pay attention. So <laughs> uh, the admiral is calling to the Starboy over the radio, and he's he's telling the uh, Zablin, "Hey, look, just turn around. Everything will be forgiven. Just don't, <laughs> you know." And he gets no response, obviously. <laughs> so yeah. Now you know how. Um, uh, it, it happens in our our politics a lot. How they talk about, oh, you don't want so and so to be the one that wakes up at four in the morning to take yeah. that call, you know, because it's you don't want you know somebody that incompetent taking that call. Well, guess what happened to Brezhnev at four in the morning? <laughs> he gets a call <laughs> that the state of the art, a state of the art anti submarine destroyer is defecting. And he gives the order, like, do use whatever force is necessary to stop them. So, uh, there are 60 planes in total that were launched to uh, it, it, during this incident to try and uh, track down and stop this ship. And half of the uh, Soviet fleet in the Baltic Sea was dispatched. Um... Now, this is a, a, a destroyer, so it's a pretty fast ship. It's pulling 33, 35 knots. And really, the only ships that have a chance of catching it are these, uh, like, interceptor boats. They're they're smaller and faster, but, yeah, not not really a match for a, uh, mm -hmm. a, uh, a destroyer with modern anti-ship weapons and anti-submarine weapons. It's just, but they're set to go, and so they're going. This is important later. <laughs> okay. So, um, they're sailing from Riga. So, uh, this is under the assumption that they're trying to defect. So, they're sailing from Riga and heading for Gotland Island. And this is Swed a Swedish-held island out in the Baltic Sea. And um, I said that they shut off the radar, and the Air Force is having no luck finding them. But... At a certain point, Zablin does turn on the radar because the fog is so thick, he didn't want to risk colliding with other ships or something. Yeah. And then once he turns on the radar, 
Now they got a bearing on him. And so there are um, the planes are sent first. They're the fastest, of course. So there are bombers, there are yak uh, I, uh, uh, fighter bombers. They're, they're, they're pretty potent aircraft. They carry like four or 500 pound uh, unguided bombs. Um, you know, this is back in 1975. So it's not like, you know, uh, the, the modern weaponry they have today. So a, um, a, a group of aircraft arrive and attack, you know, um, they drop, they drop some bombs and you know, some, some strike and uh, definitely uh, d destroy the ship. But what they hit was a Soviet freighter. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, it was a Soviet freighter that was headed for Finland. <laughs> so, yeah, that didn't go so well. There's a black eye for you. So there's uh, any time, you know, there's combat. Uh, um, what's the saying I always talk about, hon? No, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. So there, this ship is still flying, and they're, they're, they didn't turn their radar off, which is something I would have done. But they're, they're booking, and they make it to about 50 miles from the um, Swedish waters. Oh, Swedish. Right. So um, it, remember there was this emergency broadcast about the, the store of Zavoy uh, having a mutiny and heading for open sea. That's under an emergency channel, and it was uncoded. The Swedes obviously being neighbors of Russia were paying attention and heard that. And so they know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, all, there's, there, there's a scramble on both sides about, you know, about, you know, the, like, what do we do and all this sort of stuff like that. So it was, uh, it, it was something. So now more orders are given for planes to um, attack the stores of and some of these orders are refused outright, either because they're afraid of causing another incident, like sinking another freighter, or uh, they don't want to fire on their own comrades. But some pilots do fire, and they do drop a bomb, and it does cause enough damage where the ship is taking on water. Uh, not a lot, but it's definitely taking on water, and it's staring is damaged, and it starts going in circles. Oh. Yeah. And so at this point, oh, before I before I describe, I'm, that that's wrapping things up. Um, there was another incident where um, an attack aircraft went down and started strafing a ship, and it was another misidentification. They were actually attacking one of the fast attack boats that were pursuing the Storrs of Oi. and uh, the Storrs of Oi actually never returned fire at any of the attacks that were made against it. They did not return fire against their fellow countrymen. But this this fast attack boat that was attacked by um, a, a, a Soviet aircraft did return fire. <laughs> but there were, you know, they, they, nobody hit each other in this incident, but that, that's the kind of thing that was happening on. That's how crazy this was. So their, their, their rudders hit, their ship is going in circles and so at this point, three of the sailors that were part of the crew go down and free the captain. And at this point, he takes command of the ship and shoots Zablin in the leg. 
and he manages to get on the radio and declare that he has reestablished control of the ship. Um, the entire crew is arrested and interrogated. Um, they are dishonorably discharged. And the two, uh, um, Zablin and uh, his name was Sheen, the executive officer, are the ones that were fully laid to blame. Uh, Sheen, the executive officer, was sentenced to eight years in prison. And Zablin was convicted of high treason. Wow. Uh, I, uh, there was not a punishment listed in the, in what, in the research, uh, but we can imagine it was harsh, if not death. Yeah, um, Siberia at know. the least, right? At the very least, yeah. I'm sure he was disappeared. And uh, so anyway, this ship, uh, yeah, they, 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 they caused, that was a major incident. So they it, it went on to serve on into the 90s, and uh, eventually this ship was uh, sold to India for scrap. But, um, yeah, this is the story of uh, that, that inspired the, uh, the, the, the Hunt for Red October um, a story by uh, Tom Clancy. And uh, I found it fascinating. You know, it's a, it's just a... Oh, absolutely. Um, the, way, the, way, the way reality... Because, I mean, you're, you're watching all, this, all the movies and the special effects, and you're like, oh, what a great tale and story. But, you know, when, you're, when you listen to the real-life stuff that happens, it's like, wow. That, that that's that's some weird stuff. Yeah, so I I'm going to continue um, with this hunt for Red October next week. I'm going to try and track down or get my own copy of the audio of that clip I was talking to you about, Kenny, yeah, yeah. The, of, uh, of the Dallas, and uh, and discuss that in detail. And because the the hunt for Red October, the Red October itself in the movie is a typhoon class. Mm -hmm. submarine which is a nuclear missile launch and so next week in addition to talking about that clip of the hunt for red october i'm going to talk about an incident involving a typhoon class submarine of the soviet navy called the kursk and um it did not go well uh they, they lost the sub <laughs> uh not not the defection the other way mm -hmm. so so that's that's my uh my plan for for next week Okay, so yeah, you're gonna have to uh, uh, buy yourself a copy of Hunt for October to get that audio. I'm, I think we own it. Such a good movie. Do we own it, Hunt? Okay, such a good movie, though. So it is. It is. It is a good movie. I enjoyed it. But uh, and definitely not not the typical kind of movie that I would I would watch, but uh, very pleasurable nonetheless. So yeah, I mean a, a lot of Tom Clancy's movies um, are very techno techno thrillers. I mean they're they're mm -hmm. they're high in the oh special special note about Tom Clancy. So um, he was so detailed and intricate in his uh, writings that he was interrogated. I guess interrogated is a strong word. <laughs> interviewed. Yeah, no, 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 there was no waterboarding. There, he was interviewed by the uh, FBI and CIA and the intelligence of the, def the Defense Intelligence Agency. Wow. <laughs> because it's just like, hey, how did you get this information? He was that spot on about, how, you know, how things worked or, you know, what have you. Matter of fact, uh, this little tidbit about the movie for The Hunt for Red October. So the special effects guys are making the 
um, the 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 driving position, the place where the helmsman sits mm-hmm. for the submarine, with all the dials and the and the steering yoke and everything that's in there, right? And they so they build it, and then they invite the military. Just it's like, hey, 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 come in, come check this out. What do you think of this? And the military shows up, and looks at it, and goes, "Yeah, um, th- that's too close to reality. You're going to have to change it." Wow, <laughs> that's wild. It is. Uh, uh, things like that make me chuckle. <laughs> All right. Well, but, uh, anything else? There goes my time. Uh, right. Not nothing comes to mind. No, I think we're good. Okay, well, on that note, um, Adam has the night off from uh, Mythical Moment, so we have a bonus, some bonus George Romero trailers in anticipation of Michelle talking about uh, the history of George Romero as a filmmaker and a human being and uh, being an extremely tall man. <laughs> Very so, much so. Wow. So su- supplemental trailers for this break are two early 70s movies. Uh, by George Romero. One we've talked about on the show before called The Crazies. Great, great, great movie with a lot of parallels to some things that are going on today and some things that people think are going on that aren't. Uh, And uh, Martin, probably one of the creepiest vampire movies ever made. It's one of those, is he or isn't he, you know? Yeah. Really gross. So we'll be right back with more and we'll get some video recommendations from Joe some binge watching right after this we never thought it would happen nobody gets in or out of that town now is that clear the girl just died how do you intend to let the people know about all this we were asleep they dragged us right out of the house are we under martial law don't talk to me or anybody else unless you get a voice print check oh hell's broke loose in town nobody knows what's going on now look, you just can't push us around this way. We've got to get a nuclear weapon in the air above that town. Hey, what the hell's going on, Sheriff? You know what I do, boy. Let's go. I taken me no push. They started something they can't stop. The crazy. There's a something that dements. Something that inflames. Something that brutalizes. It's madness unleashed by human error. The crazies. Can they tame it before time runs out? I'm a key man on the Christmas team. A key man! I'm one of the developers of the goddamn thing. Now, if you want me to get the job done, you get me the stuff I need, and you get it the hell in here before the morning's over. A small town becomes a giant stockade. Evan City must be contained or leveled. We're all concerned with Evan City, Mr. Hawks. If we have to push the button, we just say the weapon went off. Get me the president. Three thousand six hundred and fourteen people are trapped by an unknown enemy. Five are on the run. Can they escape the spreading fury of the crazies? You can make it. I know it. 
Terror snowballs into hell. In there. Madness runs rampant. We'll dope it out sooner or later. Sooner or later. The crazy. Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. It's not easy living the way I do. I have to be careful all the time. But I'm pretty good at it. I think as I get older, I get better. I haven't been caught yet. Martin, another kind of terror. You see, people don't understand what's wrong. They think that I'm a monster. I think I'm a vampire. People don't realize that those things I see in the movies are not real. I don't have a whole lot of women. It's nice to watch them. I watch them a lot all the time. I have to to be sure that nothing goes wrong. I follow them. I plan. I'm very careful. I have needles now. I can use them. I can put them to sleep. And it doesn't hurt. Martin, another kind of terror. I would like to be like everyone else. I have to do things that I don't necessarily like to do. But I want to stay alive. I do need blood. From the director of Night of the Living Dead, Martyr. I think I killed somebody. I know I killed somebody. I haven't heard that in a while. Oh, I got this too. Can you feel the love? Yeah, so <laughs> I did get that. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so welcome back to the show, everybody. And there, uh, Michelle, doesn't Mart Martin just give you chills up your spine all over again? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird flick. It it's really icky. Is. It's icky. That, that, that's just let me just say that it's one. That's another one of those movies I saw when I was uh, much younger, and it freaked me the f out. Uh, and uh, of course, welcome back, Miles. Thank you for the Hunt for Red October back history. That was very fun. 
Yep, yep. Thank you. Informative, and uh, hopefully uh, somebody's toiling away in Siberia and not uh, six feet under. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, or just he might have died of natural causes at this point. Um, and uh, of course, uh, Joe uh, Santorso, welcome back. Uh, you didn't have a birthday that you wanted to pick, so you went the route I went a show or two ago. Um, to do some recommendations of videos you've been watching, of of uh, series you've been watching. Absolutely. So, once you set this up, then I'll knock it out for you. Oh, you ready for me? Oh, yeah, yeah. This, this is your your turn. My turn. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's start with Archive eighty one. Okay. Okay. So, in the present day, Archive eighty one follows archivist. Dan Turner, played by, I hope I get this right, Mamadou Thay. Um, okay. Sounds kind of familiar. And uh, okay. I, yeah, I, I, I'll take your uh, pronunciation. Uh, yes. Takes a job restoring a collection of damaged videotapes. Nah. You should that, like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is your thing. Uh, is. Dan is asked to work on an HI8 tape. You know, those little. Like cassettes. Mm-hmm. They were popular in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, the tape is for one Virgil Davenport of LMG Corporation, and Virgil invites him to fix the rest of the tapes, and he accepts um, for $100,000. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's a big job. So as the tapes are too fragile to be moved, he goes to live in a research campus owned by the LMG Corporation. Virgil gives Dan a bracelet <laughs> that can summon emergency medical staff, as there is no internet or cell reception where Dan is working. Oh, wow. And Dan has a history of mental health issues. It is revealed that Dan is being watched at this facility, cameras all over the place, Reconstructing the work of a documentary filmmaker named Melody Pendris, played by Dina Shahabi. Okay. He is drawn into her investigation of a dangerous cult at the Visser apartment building where she meets cult's leader, Samuel, played by Evan Jonagait. Okay. I believe he was an X-Men, uh, who is a cult leader. And that's Fun. our first clip. All right, clip one, here we go. We're looking for an artist. Someone who can restore a recently acquired collection of damaged videotapes. Well, what kind of damage? Fire damage. There's just one hitch, because the materials are so fragile, they can't be moved. So you'd be doing the work at our remote research facility. Creating this archive, Putting this puzzle together, well, it would mean the world to everyone who lost someone in that fire. I'm Melody Pendris. It's March 11th, 1994, 10.32 a.m. This is day one of the Oral History Project on the Visser apartment building. I'm now gonna go knock on some doors. Wish me luck. Do you hear it? Hear what? There's something in this place. 
that calls to you. pretty creepy joe oh sorry i was on oh, mute there you go uh yes it is a creepy show <laughs> very creepy i like uh, the, i like creepy you, you would like the opening of the uh the, the uh first uh episode because uh our protagonist dan is walking down the streets of Times square and on the corner is a, a guy that reminds me of a Kenny Pick who is selling <laughs> old videotapes <laughs> nice. for a buck a piece. And um, you might like this guy. Yeah, might I, I might. Well, I, I might. He, that would be one of my suppliers because I sell them for far more than a dollar a piece. So. <laughs> right, right, right. But this guy would sell you, but they were random tapes and they, you, you just get what you get. Oh, okay. Like, uh, and Dan complains at the opening scene that... The last tape he gave me was like six hours of a t-ball game. Uh, <laughs> so, but he has gotten some. But he had, he reminds me he's gotten some treasures. So, anyway, that's just an aside. But anyway, the Visser apartment building was built on the ruins of an old mansion that burned down in the 1920s. Oh, okay, that's never good. No, uh, shades of poltergeist. Oddly. Yeah. No bodies were found after the mansion burned. Oh, maybe they all went up Heaven's chimney? Mm, not quite. <laughs> In the next clip, Melody approaches the Vesser, and she notices some strange runes on the exterior of the building, okay. and she is abruptly met by a stranger who invites her in. Next clip. <laughs> for a building like this. 
Melody? That's me. You coming in or not? You coming in or not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Melody moves into the Visser to complete her documentary, and she starts to interview the residents, uh, okay. some of whom are very strange. <laughs> Eccentric, <laughs> might you say? Yeah, a bit. <laughs> As it turns out, the Visser, like the mansion uh, ruins it was built on, burned down in 1994 with many casualties. Before the fire, Melody begins to uncover strange events happening on the sixth floor, which she is told is off-limits. Some of the residents are never found after the fire, including Melody. Oh, wow. As the season unfolds across two timelines, 1994 and the present, Dan slowly finds himself obsessed with uncovering what happened to Melody. When the two characters form this mysterious connection, it's almost psychic. Dan becomes convinced that he can save her from the terrifying end she met 25 years earlier. But in the end, things get really strange after Dan, for Dan after him and his best friend Mark perform the ritual that they performed on the sixth floor um, previously performed by the cult. And Dan wakes up in a hospital bed and he doesn't know where he is and he starts asking the nurse some questions in the next clip. Hello? Hello? Is anybody out there? Well, hello there. We were worried you were never going to wake up. How long have I been? Uh, ten days. Have my friends been here? Mark? No, sorry. No visitors. How did I get here? Well, all I know is that you were luckier than the rest. God was watching out for you. The rest? Did you live there? Were you close to your neighbors? Live where? To Visser. people I'm sorry what year is it I'm gonna go get the doc and have him come in talk to you what year Dan looked up at the television in his hospital room and there was a newsman reporting on the death of Kurt Cobain. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> Maybe it was just a rerun on MTV. I don't think so. <laughs> no, this was not a flat screen. So that's what we have streaming on Netflix. It was released on... January 14th, I believe, and it went straight to number one on Netflix's most watched list. Nice. Yes. So, um, highly recommended. And uh, I think, Michelle, you would enjoy it because it is really creepy. 
scary. Yes, it's on my list of ones to watch. I was actually going to start watching it today. I just didn't feel well, so. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, well, it's um, we got it's quite got, a it's quite. Huh? Uh, uh, I was just said we got new phones and a new deal, and we get free Netflix now. So, oh, good, good, so because I, I the next thing we're going to go to is Colony, and that's also streaming on Netflix. All right. And Colony is another sort of adventure altogether because it takes place in a dystopian near future Los Angeles where residents live under a regime of military occupation by an organization known as the Transitional Authority. The authority serves as an extraterrestrial group uh, referred to as the hosts, about whom little is known until later in the series. The symbol of the collaborating forces features stylized birds of prey, or raptors, which give rise to the nickname of the of the host, the Raps. Okay. Uh, the authority enforces host policy via militarized police called Homeland Security, <laughs> and nicknamed the Red Hats for the red helmet covers on their otherwise black tactical attire. The oh. host took control on day one, and that is simply known as the arrival. That day began with massive worldwide communication interference and jamming, which came after a week-long hunt for relevant figures who went missing around the world. First clip. Mm. There we go. Morning. Breakfast? I'm gonna get something there. Daddy, look. Pretty. Love you. Love you. Overnight, seven VIPs went missing in the L.A. area. Sir, do we have any idea? Hang on, hang on. Why have all the cars stopped working? You have to get out of Los Angeles. We're going to be all right. Whoever's behind this attack knows exactly what they're doing. I couldn't get you. I'll go get him. Oh, my God. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sounds intense. Late that day, a massive re- rectangular blocks descend from the sky linking together to build walls dividing the city. Yikes. One of these walls, 20 to 30 stories tall, many meters thick and many miles in length, surround the central part of L.A., where the series is set. Uh, other similar walls have been constructed around the neighboring urban areas called blocks, with the whole referred to as a colony. Traffic passes through the walls at heavily secured checkpoints called gateways, which allow the authority to strictly control the movement of people and the distribution of consumables, such as food and fuel, which are rationed. The geographical extent of the alien invasion is unclear at this point, but later scenes in the series show authority members from all over the world, hence making the invasion worldwide. A resistance movement is referred to as the resistance and the insurgency. 
an informal barter-based black market has sprung up, trading in surplus materials and home-produced goods, sort of like we did at the beginning of the pandemic with toilet paper. Yeah. Um, yeah. A series be- the series begins less than a year later after the arrival of aliens who occupy Earth. It follows the Bowmans and their extended family in Los Angeles. They're living under the alias name Sullivan's to hide the father's identity. The father, Will Bowman, uh, played by Josh Holloway, is a former FBI agent and retired Army Ranger and would be forced into service for the aliens if his background was known, so hence his alias. Their son, Charlie, was on a school sport trip and was separated when the alien walls sectioned off that part of the city. Will now works in an auto repair shop to cover his identity and to find his missing son in the neighboring Santa Monica block. Will Bowman attempts to smuggle himself through the wall, but is discovered and arrested when the resistance accidentally detonates a bomb at the gateway. Oh, God. After his capture... Will is taken to Alan Snyder, paid by Peter Jacobson. You might know him from House. He was that long-nosed little guy, <laughs> if you ever watched House. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was a doctor in later later episodes. Well, I'd probably Alan Snyder recognize is the proc- him if I saw him. What's that? I'd recognize him if I, if I saw him, probably. Probably. I think he was also in, in a sci-fi movie, but anyway... The proxy governor of the Los Angeles block is an unrepentant collaborator on Snyder. Snyder tells Will that they're aware of his real identity and that makes Will an offer can't refuse. He either joins the Red Hats and the transitional authority and uses his skills as an Army Ranger and FBI agent, which his specialty was finding people, mm-hmm. or his family would be sent to, quote unquote, the factory. Yikes. Unbeknownst to Will, his wife, Katie, played by Sarah Wayne Callis, Callis is an mm-hmm. operative in the resistance. Oh. She later reveals this to him, and they begin to trade information. Clip two. Uh, there it is. It's going to be another beautiful day today in Los Angeles with a high of 70. Good morning. You stink. Or is it you? You stink. <laughs> what are you going to do when this is all over? I'll leave this garage, you idiots. I never come back. This is the worst part of it, you know? Husbands separated from wives. Parents from children. It's bad enough he's gone. But to see you every day hating me, born, he's my son too. You know what they do to the families of criminals? Come here, come here! Come here! Come here! I haven't done anything! You'll be my 38th run. You got nothing to worry about. Hop in. Going to find my son. We were separated during the arrival. How old? He turned 12 last week. You have entered the exclusion zone. Remain inside your vehicle. My box kills X-Ray and Tommy. They'll never know we were here. Breathe! Breathe! 
opportunity. Our hosts are tired of the insurgency. You want me to collaborate? Infiltrate the insurgency and bring us their leader. The most important day in human history is coming. I just want you and your family to be on the right side. You want to spin a hook down the resistance? Collaborate and you die. I'm not sending our kids to a labor camp. You're putting a target on your back and on mine and on those children. What would you do? intense no one ever sees them of course that's not true in later seasons but anyway yeah <laughs> um as the series unfolds the family is totally torn apart by mistrust torn loyalties and the truth that is behind the invasion and why the aliens are here mm. it appears that the hosts have enemies of their own and humanity is about to be caught in a crossfire between two warring, warring alien races. The host came here to mine something that's on the moon, and that's where the factory is. And oh that's why being sent to the factory is a death sentence, because eventually radiation poisoning kills you, but you're there mining this radioactive isotope they need for their weapons. They are actually running away from a race of aliens who are chasing them. By the end of season three, the family finally begins to realize that the possibility of mass extin extinction exists and unspeakable choices they have to make to survive. Uh, it turns out that the aliens had weeded people into different stratum of importance using an algorithm that they used and Will and people like him were selected to be their allies because they had special skills. Um, this so thing has everything. It has how drones that will blow it. Yeah. Huh? How many seasons are, are there? Originally, the series was aired by USA Network from Janu January 14th, 2016 to July 25th, 2018. Uh, three seasons. Uh, <laughs> unknowingly why the USA Network canceled the show after the season three, but Netflix picked it up and it's airing now. And, you know, there's a lot of possibilities for a season four because really things were left unsettled, say, mm. put it that way. But it's uh, it's got everything. It's got drones that instantly uh, uh, sanitize you, <laughs> meaning, uh, you know, splits you into nothing. <laughs> you just see splats of blood, and that's it. Wow. So that's it. That's uh, Colony. If you like, uh, you know, re uh, it was based on uh, the French resistance in France. Mm -hmm. 
uh, during World War II, and uh, it's meant to be a metaphor for that. So check it out. Cool. Netflix. Right. You got free Netflix now? Yeah, sounds good. So, uh, all right. Well, I'll tell you what. We got to get going to the break right now, and when we come back, we're going to have um, some George A. Romero fun facts and history from Michelle since his birthday was this week as well. And uh, another uh, guy we lost way too soon. So Yeah. Uh, but, all right. So, yeah, we'll be right back with more It Came From Cleveland right after this. And now, on with the show. It's going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. from the dead, kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish unto you. Something evil. We don't know how many of them there are. We know when we find them, we can kill them. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Not recommended for impressionable children. I still had that laying around for you, Michelle. Oh, that's a good one, yes. Yeah, they're all messed up. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome back to It Came From Cleveland. And, uh, of course, uh, thank you, Joe, for the show recommendations. And, Miles, for your... Uh, uh, retelling of the uh, inspiration for the Hunt for Red October. And, yep. and uh, now it's time to get into uh, the Land of the Dead with George A. Romero. With yes, yes, a lot of dead in his, in his past, and you know, he um, he really, he really was a pioneer in a lot of ways. Oh gosh. Um, of yeah, of course, he was born February fourth, nineteen forty. In a little place called the Bronx, <laughs> New York. Little, well, so, you might have heard of it. Oh uh, yeah, we've, we've heard a little bit. And uh, yeah, as I said before, he topped off, topped in height at six foot five. He was a very big man, very, very intimidating. From from what I understand, you know, he's he was he was pretty pretty uh, jovial and pretty you know unless you got his on 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 you know unless you got him angry. And it took a lot to get him angry, from what I understand. Yeah. Um, he uh, never really set out to be a Hollywood figure. Um, but once he did, he was very successful. He, um, of course, everybody knows he was a director of the, gra- the groundbreaking Living Dead films. And um, he was born uh, to Anne Dvorsky and George Romero. That's George with a J. Um, oh, okay. His father was born in Spain and raised in Cuba. So maybe Jorge mo- Romero. What? Yeah, Jorge. Yeah. Could be Jorge. Yeah. Um, and uh, his mother was Lithuanian. Um, he grew up in uh, New York uh, until attending the renowned Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Uh, in, in Pittsburgh. So um, after he graduated, he began shooting many short films and commercials. 
And um, his him then him and his friends got together and formed this little production company called Ten, uh, Image Ten Productions in the late 1960s. And they all put in put up some money to uh, to to produce this uh, this little uh, little film called Night of the Living Dead. And uh, here's here's uh, George talking about making the Night of the Living Dead. He would tell people, "We're going to make a movie." Oh yeah, in Pittsburgh. Give me a break over here. The film got hot in France and then a few of the critics that had slammed on it here noticed that the French were noticing it and they decided to notice it and you know within three years it was in the Museum of Modern Art and I'm going what? (laughs) (laughs) That was it everyone struggled through it everyone stuck with it none of the actors quit on us I mean you know there were no protections going either way contracts or anything like that we were just a bunch of people that were getting together and making a movie and you know it was all beg borrow and steal real guerrilla stuff and you know somebody painted the police cars with the the name of the town and you know it was just all pitch in and and do it it was like a picnic we lived in that farmhouse a bunch of us six or seven of us just would sleep in that old farmhouse the protagonists are in a situation that they could probably easily solve if they would stop fighting among themselves i do think that you know pettiness and you know whether well in some cases not pettiness in some cases you know whether it's religious or ethnic or whatever tribalism keeps people from the end goal. People have written about these films and say, well, if you really look deep underneath, you'll find these things. And I don't think they're deep underneath at all. They're sort of right there in your face, right up front. But first and foremost, these are horror movies. They're thrillers. Horror fantasy has always been a way to, uh, you know, get your views through. It's their parables. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and that movie went on to make uh, 250 times the amount it cost to produce it, to to make it. So yeah. it was it was it was not too bad of a box office uh, uh, cut there, huh? <laughs> yeah, sadly, it fell into the public domain, so a lot of the money from it he couldn't make in video home video sales. Right, right. Um, but uh, just to go back in time a little bit, at the age of 19. He uh, r- briefly worked as a page boy on the set of uh, North by Northwest. Um, wow. He later said he was unimpressed by Hitchcock's uh, directing style, saying it seemed mechanical and passionless. Coincidentally, though, um, Romero and North by Northwest co-star Martin Landau, they died one day apart. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. So- that's that's a, a neat little bit of trivia, um, yeah. He um, he Martin is his favorite uh, is the favorite of his films that he made, which is kind of fun that you 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 had the uh, trailer a little bit ago. That was neat. Um, he said he 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 just uh, he says uh, that it was satisfying experience a satisfying experience of creating Martin. And that energized him to go on to make Dawn of the Dead. So, because that was, that turned out to be his greatest financial and critical success. Very cool. Um, but he has an interesting background. Not only did he do Night of the Living Dead uh, with his friends and it became a commercial success, but he also had some other interesting work. And um, he was also, uh, he also has a story about uh, The Walking Dead. Now we clip two. All right. Hello, Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. 
You know, congratulations. I mean, this Night of the Living Dread, the, the, this nice curated journey through your work, that's got to be kind of fun for you with the Tiff Light Box. It's, it is fun, you know. Um, I always loved uh, fantasy films. And, you know, I, I, I grew up on a combination of the old movies because when I was right at that impressionable age, 12, 11, 12, mm -hmm. they were re-releasing the, the famous monster movies, the Universal Films. Dracula, Frankenstein, the originals. If you look at Dracula, the, the, the original, Lugosi's Dracula is beautifully shot. It's just gorgeous. Um, All those good films, when, they, when they're done right, are not just like we said about the monster. It's about they're making statements. Yes. So when did that become a part of the story for you? Well, for me, I, I, <laughs> I was sort of uh, dragged into it in a way. I mean, I, I, we were angry. When we, I, I, made, well, I, I made my first film, Night of the Living Dead, and... Um, we were angry, yes, and it, I, when I, there's a scene in, near the end of the film where, you know, dogs, come, a posse with dogs comes and they hunt down this guy and they shoot him. And the guy, the actor, happened to be African-American. Mm -hmm. And our intention was not to make a racial statement. This is 1968, right? 1968. So it was right at that time. There were new riots in Watts and, you know, and... and that's not what was on our mind. And when we had the film finished and we drove it to New York to see if anybody wanted to show it. And while we were driving to New York, we heard on the car radio that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. It was April of 68 and you're on this drive. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it became a racial movie. What did you make of Walking Dead? The Walking Dead premiere, the, the most recent premiere, was the highest rated basic cable premiere right. ever. Yeah. And obviously, there's a real, it's a, it's a real homage to you in a sense. The zombies are very similar in a lot of ways. But what did you, what did you think of what was become of this Walking Dead thing? Uh, I wish they would have called me. <laughs> well, I heard they offered you to, to direct, direct some episodes. Yes, an episode. But yeah. that's once the Bible is written. Right. Uh, you know, and, so you and said no? Not much you could, I, yes, I said no. Because it's not my thing. And in fact, I thought it was a little too close for comfort. And uh, so I've, I've basically said no, even though a bunch of my buddies are working on it, right. Greg Nicotero and the boys from Sundance, and uh, um, anyway. I want to go back to some of your early stuff here. I'm going to play this clip, early TVs. You didn't do Walking Dead, but this is what do you great. think of this? And the kind eyes <laughs> of the people in the operating room. Even though they wore masks, I could see their kind eyes. Mr. Rogers got your tonsillectomy. <laughs> that's yours. That's me. Mr. Rogers gets a tonsillectomy brought to you by George A. Romero. Right, that's a <laughs> How does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know why they <laughs> called me. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Pittsburgh. I love Fred. I, I used to shoot all... He had this feature on his program called Picture Picture. Mm -hmm. And the trolley would come and take us off to some place, some other land. And we would, uh, I shot all of those, all the picture, picture things for Fred. Most of the, of the people that are working professionals in media today from Pittsburgh worked for Fred. All of us started with Fred. Fred was a wonderful, he was a wonderful guy. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and again, Fred Rogers, somebody we, you know, that we should have lived forever.
Yes, definitely. But it is kind of funny. You know, you, you think of George A. Romero, you don't think of Mr. Rogers right away. <laughs> it makes total sense to me being somebody who grew up very close to Pittsburgh. And, you know, you, you know, it was a very tight knit circle of people, you know, with, you know, Bill Cardill, of course, you know, he, he played the newscaster, his daughter, Lori Cardill went on to be in day of the dead. Um, you know, and of course, Bill Cardill also hosted the late night horror movies. And I think he even, I'm sure he played night of the living dead and was like, don't look for a familiar face. And, you know, (laughs) um, and, and, you know, so, I mean, Pittsburgh television is a lot like, a lot like Cleveland television too, because there, there's a lot of, there were a lot of local celebrities that really kind of, uh, worked together. If you look at Goulardi, you know, Eddie, um, or, or no, uh, Ernie Anderson and, you know, Tim Conway got a start out of here and those guys both went on to work on the Carol Burnett show. So, uh, you know, it, it, and, you know, they worked with like Big Chuck and Little John who I've talked about. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's totally, I can see it growing up on Pittsburgh TV. It makes total sense to me. Well, it makes sense too, because, you know, uh, Pittsburgh TV, you know, the, the movie, whatever movie industry they had there as well, their commercial industry, it was a closed ecosystem. Yeah. So probably everybody knew everybody. Yeah, and there's a certain <laughs> so, flavor. There's a certain flavor to to things too when you can when you know that it was produced in a certain area and you're familiar with that area, you're like, you know, you'll see things and you'll be like, "Oh, that's here and, you know, or this accent, you hear this accent or or whatever because there were a fair amount of Pittsburgh accents in in some of uh Romero's uh uh works too. Yeah, Night of the Living Dead was filmed outside of Pittsburgh. So yeah. there you go. You and, know? and Dawn of the Dead was filmed at Monroeville Mall. Uh, Monroeville Mall down there, uh, close to Zealand Opal. So. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, but George Romero, he directed, wrote, um, he even acted in some of his movies, which is kind of funny. A lot of the roles are uncredited, but he's played a zombie in Day of the Dead. Um, he played a biker in a Santa Claus suit in Dawn of the Dead, you know, uh, <laughs> he hysterical. played a police chief in Diary of the Dead. Um, yeah. And he was even in, uh, he was even in the crazies. He was an extra at the dance in in the high school infirmary. Nice. So, you know, and it's, it's kind of fun when you can do stuff like that. But, um, so everybody knows the Day of the Dead movies, you know, the, the Night of the Living Dead and that sort of thing and, the, the, and that sort of the horror. But uh, he did a movie which I um, have always found entertaining. And it's called, it has, a two, you know, two titles, maybe even three, because, you know, a lot of times they retitled something when they released yes. it in a different market. And uh, this one is called Hungry Wives, a.k.a. Season of the Witch from 1972. Hungry wives. My evening is free. On a diet of men. Yeah, you're not bad in the sack, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> bad yourself. Everything women could want out of marriage, except the one thing they crave most. Joan, available. Shirley, dissolving her problems in drink. Marion, dabbling in witchcraft. They are all... Hungry wives with an appetite for diversion. 
gambling with life and death. Son of a... Hungry wives lead normal lives, or do they? One of these days you're going to find yourself lying there. Some jackass between your legs. What goes on while their husbands are at work? You are sick, woman. You know what I was doing. Bald in the next room. And you go with it. Because you didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what to do. I'll tell you how to handle it. You kick some ass, damn it. You kick some ass. Hungry wives. <laughs> I love that narrator. Hungry wives. Yeah, I got a, I got a kick out of it because she's one of the few female narrators I've actually heard do, yeah. you know, narrations for a movie like that. So, for sure, that that made me giggle. Um, and it's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty kooky movie. It really is, you know. It sounds and, like. Um, I tell you, she's got some nails on her. One of, one of the wives does. They, oh, yeah? they, they look pretty. They look pretty sharp looking. <laughs> nice. Nice. But you know, we we know George A. Romero did Creep Show. Um, he was actually considered for other um, Stephen King uh, uh, vehicles, but uh, for some reason or another, it was he was never able to. You know, that it never never worked out. Mm-hmm. He was originally the person that was supposed to be uh, directing um, Pet Cemetery, and then that went through two other directors and then it was finally the the, the woman that, that ended up finishing uh directing it um the, he was up for doing the stand as a theatrical release and that deal fell through and it ended up becoming the miniseries and um he also did uh he was also uh uh set to direct Salem's Lot which came again became another TV series I mean a TV uh, a TV show mm-hmm. a TV movie so, um, and he was originally attached to write and direct Resident Evil. Really? Yeah, but uh, he, he left the project because of creative differences over the screenplay. So there you go. I'm not um, surprised. But one of the movies, <laughs> which has always creeped me out, this movie just makes me shiver when I see it. And I don't know why. I think it's the, 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 the it just... You know, when monkeys go bad, you get creeped out by it because they're like little people. Yeah. And uh, this movie's <laughs> called Monkey Shines in 1988. It's about a crippled man who gets a monkey as a companion to help him out. And it goes horribly wrong. And this was based on a Stephen King story, right? Yes. All right, here we go. Everything A man trapped by his own body. To Alan, to the start of his new life. So you train monkeys exclusively for quadriplegics? How about if I were to donate a monkey? She hasn't been exposed to anything weird in the lab. No. An animal trained to follow commands. How am I supposed to take care of it, Jeff? The idea is that it's going to take care of you. She's unbelievable. She's like a miniature person. Get rid of that bird or so help me. One with the mind for revenge. I've been so full of anger. I've had the most horrible thoughts lately. <laughs> I've made up a formulation based on human memory cells. I've been injecting one of my monkeys. 
I don't like this change in you, Alan. Never with the instinct to kill. What the hell are you doing to her? Ella is getting out of the house, and I'm getting out with her. You do know that that's impossible. Man is the only animal capable of murder. She did it for me. Did it because I wanted it done. Stop it! From the director of Night of the Living Dead, George A. Romero, the master of terror and suspense. You're not gonna hurt me. I'm part of you. Monkey shines a new into terror. Nice. I was wrong. It's Michael Stewart that wrote the novel. Nice. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the um. I, th- I think I'm mixing it up with something else. I was too. I've, I've, I've read so much of Stephen King stuff, so much of other stuff. And, you know, even, even this Bachman, you know, the, 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 the novelettes and stuff he wrote underneath that pen name. So, um, but uh, yeah, so he's a pretty, pretty cool guy. I mean, he's, uh, he just, he's done so much stuff that's so iconic. I mean, I don't think we would have had zombies the way they are now without him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were, there were limited zombies before that, 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 but that was always Haitian zombies or, you know, that sort of thing. He actually brought it into a, a, a different, you know, spectrum of zombie. And then of course, you know, they, they get improved after that. They, we end up with the fast zombies, you know, and, and movies like train train from Busan, which was really, really oh, a yeah. cool movie. Totally nuts. <laughs> but yeah, um, so um, yeah, he he passed away way too early, and it it was it was just kind of sad. Uh, but he was a dual citizen um, at the time of his death. He was Canadian and American. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And he was post, uh, posthumously awarded a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame um, in uh, October 25th, 2017. Okay. Well, that's good. He got his uh, he got his his due there, huh? Yeah, they said he quietly passed away in his sleep while listening to the score of The Quiet Man from 1952, one of his all-time favorite films. Wow. So... That's, uh, you know, so film was uh, in his blood until the end. Very much so. And he had those iconic, those iconic glasses, those thick frames, you know, square, square, uh, square framed glasses. And, you know, you couldn't see those glasses without thinking of him. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, you know, um, absolutely. He was a character in, in you know, personality, physically, and what he put on the screen. I mean, Very much so. You got yeah. so much, so much of him. And he was, you know, genuinely just a sweet guy from every interview I've ever seen. Yep. And and one of my favorite quotes from him is, is um, I'll never get sick of zombies. I just get sick of producers. <laughs> That's funny. That's very cool. So, uh, anything else you want to add, Michelle, or anybody else want to add anything uh, before we uh, go to the break? I can't think of anything. I think I covered all my things. It's just my that connection with Mister Rogers really made me giggle. And once I found out that he actually, you know, filmed the 
you know, the, when, when they, when they go, go away into those other areas. I, I really like that. I like that idea. Makes me wish he would have put Mr. Rogers on, on a TV screen in one of his movies. That would have been cool. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, so or have a zombie come around on the trolley. Yeah, and Miles yeah. and Miles does apologize. He had to go lay down. He's got a bad headache. Oh, that's okay. And we know he's got his big schedule now too. So, um, but uh, but anyway, well, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and get going to the break. And when we come back, I'll see if you guys agree with me on whether or not these sequels that we have coming up with birthdays. I'll just tell you who uh is in these movies but i won't spoil the actual uh movies themselves but we have one victor buono you might remember as king tut on the batman tv series born february 3rd 1938 and the mother of gwyneth paltrow blythe danner born february 3rd 1943 uh we've got two 70s sci-fi movies Starring each one of uh, one with each of them, and I think that they are just as good, if not a, maybe even a touch better, than the original movies. So here we go. Did you ever see such jerky-looking creatures? Planet where apes evolved from men? There's gotta be an answer. Don't look for it, Taylor. You may not like what you find. Damn you all The year. 3,955. Charlton Heston as Taylor, a 20th century astronaut, space-wrecked in the incredible future. Linda Harrison as Nova, a savage beauty from the enslaved and voiceless human race. They are marked for target practice. James Franciscus as astronaut Brent on a reckless mission to rescue Taylor trapped by the swaggering, brutal master race of apes who dominate the Earth, a planet shattered by the atomic war of a distant, forgotten past. Where are you going? Into the Forbidden Zone. Someone or something has outwitted the intelligence of the gorillas. Envade! Envade! Face the terrifying dangers of the Forbidden Zone with them. Engulfing you in the shattering experiences that await beneath the planet of the Apes. Well, there's an intelligence working in this place. They know we're here. We are determined to know what the Apes want. War or peace? The superintelligent mutants. Are they human or something else? In their church, an unspeakable god. Doomsday bomb. Behind their faces, an unbearable secret. We don't kill our enemies. We get our enemies to kill each other. The irresistible war machine of the guerrilla army versus the devastating secret mind weapons of the subterranean mutants. 
in civilization's final battle to answer the ultimate question. Can a planet long endure, half human and half ape? Is it the beginning or the end? In 1972, Delos was open to the public. It consisted of three fantastic vacation resorts, Roman world, medieval world, and West world. It was a computerized paradise where nothing could go wrong, but something did. Now, in 1976, Delos is about to reopen. We have invested more than $1.5 billion to rebuild our equipment. Its problems have been corrected. We have replaced every circuit. Its technology has been perfected. The new Delos is not only the most fantastic resort in human history, it is also fail-safe. And an incredible new world has been created. American International presents Future World. Starring Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Arthur Hill, and Ewell Brenner as the gunslinger. Program the blast-off sequence. Five, four, four three, three, two, two one. one. We have ignition. Welcome to Future World, the ultimate vacation resort, fully programmed for your pleasure, where, for only $1,200 per day, you can experience anything you can imagine, and a few things you can't. My night to your pawn. Prepare the Martian ski sequence for five guests and return power to grid three. Future World, where every day is an exciting new adventure, where your fantasies become reality, where highly sophisticated technician, maintenance, and servant series robots work together to make your wildest dreams come true. Take us both. You can take risks, face danger, defy death. All in complete comfort and total safety. 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 You will never harm Delos. They're duplicates. You will do what Delos instructs you to do. They're creating and programming duplicates of real people. You will destroy your original. I will destroy my original. Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Arthur Hill, and Ewell Brenner. Even those of us who create them can't tell the original from the duplicate. In future world, if you can afford to go there, you're lucky. If you can't, you may be luckier than you think. Evolution doesn't take prisoners. <laughs> Slide whistle. Uh... So yeah, I got that uh, too. That's from uh, the cartoon that Betty White was on, right? Yeah, the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Yes. Oh, okay, okay, very cool. So yeah, and that's I, uh, that's Gray, that's Gray Griffin. So. Oh, very cool, very cool. So uh, welcome back, uh, Michelle and Joe, and of course, I'm sure you've probably both, at the very least, seen Beneath Planet of the Apes. 
and quite yes. possibly you've seen Future World as well, the sequel to Westworld. Yes, World. I have. It's been a long time since mm-hmm. I even thought of that movie, though. That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, you know, I was so happy. It was it was really, there were so many great birthdays of actors who had been in so many cool 70s, 80s, 90s movies. And I was just like, oh, this is great. You know, we can talk about this stuff all night. Um, but for me, um, what I really enjoy, what I like in franchises is the expansion of, of the mythos. And Beneath Planet of the Apes is really kind of like the the almost i mean they went so crazy in that one with the underground race of mutants and and you know i gotta say that trailer for that movie pretty much gives away the whole damn thing (laughs) (laughs) it's like okay well yeah but except for that the the you know where it goes from there with Cornelius and, Cornelius and Zira and uh, Escape from Planet of the Apes, which I, it's really kind of hokey, but really kind of cool at the same time. You know, it's like, oh, really? They just got in the spaceship and made it off before the whole planet was nuked, <laughs> you know? Um, but uh, but still, it's really cool. And and again, I love the, you know, the, the, the expansion of the mythos on Planet of the Apes, uh, you know, in the future. Uh, and then, you know, the time travel backwards and then the buildup of how that happened. So it almost made this, you know, that was the beginning of like this crazy time loop thing that I absolutely loved with, with Planet of the Apes that, you know, the, the, the apes from the future going to the past or they're the reason why the, that the apes, you know, became the dominant species because of the birth of Caesar, you know, I mean, so crazy and so wild, but not to stray too far. I loved it because, you know, Charlton Heston did come back in a, in a, a reduced capacity in the movie. And of course, um, the, uh, the role, um, uh, uh, Victor Buono played one of the, the main mutants in the underground. Um, and uh, that was just, you know, and Victor Bono, unfortunately, he, he passed away when he was 43 years old in uh, 1982. And that's crazy because he was only like five years younger than Blythe Danner, who is still alive to, the, to this day at the age of 79. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's so strange when you see two people so similar in age and somebody, somebody, they died at 43 I mean, and you look at this guy, and he looks like he's in his 50s or 60s or something in some of his roles. Of course, you know, being pretty overweight, um, you know, uh, you, you know that, that kind of adds age to an individual, too. Um, but it, I think he had gravitas as an actor, too, because he was really good in The Wild Wild West. Um, I forget the character he played in that, but he did so much t- television. Uh, he was just everywhere. Um uh yeah buono he was a chinese merchant in the premiere episode of the wild wild west which uh yeah not so cool but it was the 60s <laughs> so uh or was um was the wild wild west in the 60s or 70s i don't remember when that came it was the late 60s wasn't it 60s yeah yeah yes so um but uh, but yeah. So so tell tell me what what do you guys think? Uh, uh, your opinion of Planet of the Apes and Beneath Planet of the Apes. You know where do they where do they rank for you in 
quality of film storytelling you know uh, joe what do you think uh uh was beneath as good as the original or where where do you rank it well i'm always a you know like one that uh believes that the original film is always the best most of the time because it has the shock value the the newness of the idea yeah yeah i agree like, with like that. the original you know like the original alien Yes, exactly. I enjoyed all the, the 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 whole franchise. Some of them were better than others. I enjoyed them all, but there was nothing like the first Alien because it was new, it was fresh. Yeah. And um, so it's the same thing with Planet of the Apes. When I saw, I saw the original in the theater, <clears throat> I remember, you know, I, it was just great because it was a whole turn on it turned the paradigm upside down on, you know, the apocalypse and what would happen after a nuclear holocaust. Mm-hmm. And Beneath the Planet of the Apes was good, but, um, and I have to say, that's one that freaked me out. <laughs> the mutants yeah. and everything. Oh, yeah, it was scary. It was scary when I, when I saw them peel off their faces and everything. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that freaked me out. Who were they wearing those masks for, though? Is the question I have. That's my question. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> they were. They were. But, they expecting company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's my take on it, and and I had the same reaction with subsequent Alien films as I did with that. Is that the original always has the I don't know. I don't want to call it shock value, but let's just say the the, the original flavor of it. it's like like watching star wars for well the there first would time ever. yeah there wouldn't have been a second one without the first one no and and the idea was new so yeah said, oh apes and look at that at the end the bastards they did it <laughs> you know like uh you know that kind of thing and just like at the end of alien you know out the airlock <laughs> you know mm-hmm. uh one left um you, you don't expect that kind of stuff so uh i i always think the original even though subsequence could be great, um, the original always is my favorite. Yeah, understood, understood. And you know, I I, I do understand your train of thought, and I I, I agree with that a lot. Um, I just think that the I think they really tried to up a little bit of the shock value in the you know uh, beneath Planet of the Apes. With, mm-hmm. you know, the revelation of the mutant race and a little bit more history. And then, you know, the, you know, and a, a, a nuclear, you know, holocaust all over again. So uh, that was, you know, and that that scene with, uh, was it Taylor, Taylor's bloody hand pulling the the uh, uh, trigger for the nuke? It was Taylor or the other astronaut. I don't remember. I, I can't remember his name. Yeah, but one I think, of them, yeah. I think it was Taylor. That scene of just his bloody, gnarled hand pulling that switch down, it w- that haunt, haunts me to this day. Such a great scene. But, uh, Michelle, yes. what, what, what are your thoughts? I, um, to me... I, 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 enjoyed, I enjoyed the entire franchise of the Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes movies, but... To me, I like the first one better. Uh, the second one, to me, the tacking on and adding the mutants into it, you know, as a mutant thing, it, it seemed a little more cl- uh, clunky. 
Okay. I I can understand it as as far as the plot went, but I prefer the original and you know antagonistic uh, relationship in the first movie. You know, with the with the you know the humans being re- being reduced to mere animals, yeah, and the apes. You know, and I that to me seemed a lot more cohesive. Mm-hmm. And the whole stranger in a strange land thing is is a great right. trope to uh, propel a movie forward too. Yeah, I um I but I, I enjoyed them all. For each each one has their own, you know, their ups and downs. But you know, yeah. hey, it, it, it's a, it was it was great. The makeups I love the makeup for that time mm-hmm. period. Pretty amazing little 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 uh uh, uh the, the, the the apes and stuff was were done very nicely. So. Oh, it was cutting edge. It was absolutely cutting edge. And you know that people who worked on the Twilight Zone, uh because Serling was behind uh Planet of the Apes in large part. So, you know, a lot of the people who worked on some classic Twilight Zone uh, makeup jobs, like what was the the one episode we talked about? The uh, Eye of the Beholder? Was that the one? Eye of the Beholder. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you that the, the probably just about everybody who worked on that episode probably worked on Planet of the Apes. I, I, you know what? It's funny you say that because I had the same reaction with the faces on that Twilight Zone as I did to this. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, it was that same shock value. It's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't expect that. Yeah. Yeah, so it, go ahead, Michelle. Just reading a little bit of trivia about it, Orson Welles was offered the role of General Ursus. Yeah, I he, remember yeah, hearing he, that. Yeah, he turned it down because he didn't want to be spending all that screen time in a mask and makeup. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's very Orson Welles of him to do, to, to very do that. Very much so. so. But he has a, he had a wonderful voice, just like uh, uh, the the guy you're, we're talking about, uh, Borga. Uh, um, Bono, Victor Bono. Bono, Victor Bono. Yeah. He had a very be- like iconic voice. Yeah. So absolutely. So all right. So Future World, Future World. I'm gonna say I I enjoyed a lot more than Westworld because. I felt like the concepts were um, a lot more advanced in the idea. And you know what? The future world, that that expansion of the Delos Corporation and everything, that played heavily. If I don't know if either of you guys have watched the HBO series Westworld. I, I have. I love it. Um, I've watched some of it, yes. But that whole replacing humans with robots the thing that was introduced in future world absolutely uh helped you know the the style and feel even some of the music sounds very similar from uh uh future world into the west world hbo series there there are a lot of really great hooks that they took from that and incorporated into the series and you know i know the series is a whole different animal i think but again, you know, Joe, to your point, if it wasn't for the first, you know, the newness of the first, we wouldn't have all the subsequent stuff after. But I think right. Future World, that concept of, you know, replacing people with robots and, you know, there, there's a there's a, 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 a element of horror to that that kind of transcends just the killer robots of the first movie, you know? Right, right. I think you see that replayed in what we were talking about earlier, um, Raised by Wolves. 
you know, the oh, scary yeah. scariness of AI and, and all that. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, we humanity would be replaced by, you know... Uh, or dominated by. Dominated you know. by, yeah, farmed by. Mm-hmm. So, or Teslas that ignore stop signs and things like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> or if you watch The Office, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the voice in the car, the, the, uh, um, what do oh, you, the, what, uh, the, yeah, the, um, steers you into a lake, uh, yeah, know, the, takes you into a lake. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And you always follow it, you know, you say, Oh, look at this. I'm in somebody's driveway. Save the gift basket. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I can't... Re- G- why can't I think... GPS. G- GPS. GPS. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So, you think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting there thinking, what's he talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, GPS. So, uh, yeah, okay. so here you are in somebody's driveway. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, the you know, and uh, Michelle, did you watch any of the... Or, Michelle, you said you watched some of the, the Westworld series. Did you, Joe, watch any of that? No, I did not. That you might want to add that to your list because your your all your recommendations are are making me think that you would enjoy this show quite a bit. So that sounds like- multiple timelines. You got that going for you with uh, mm-hmm. with this told from you know different perspectives, and uh, and again different points in time, and uh, lots of. Uh, weird discovery along the way uh people who might not be people things like that so uh memories that might not be real so uh so the series really expounded upon that element of horror that you know i'm not a real person what of course i'm a real person this is my wife this is my son this was my you know these were my parents this is where i used to live Oh no, you were just programmed to believe that. I mean that's that's real real creepy terror to me. When, you know, AI becomes aware that it's been manipulated and tricked and toyed with and then it seeks revenge. <laughs> you know. And oh boy, do the guests toy with the the, the robots. Oh, god. oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, and the whole man in black twist, uh, the whole yes. Yule Brenner twist uh, for Ed Harris uh, as the man in black for the Westworld TV series. Shit. It is twisted. Um, twisted beyond repair. So it's like my 100-foot extension cord. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I highly recommend buying two fifty foot extension cords and not a hundred foot extension cord, everyone. Because uh, seventy five, I think that's the longest one I have. You 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 remember those old telephone cords from the seventies and eighties? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then you, when you'd stretch them too far, the real long ones, you'd stretch them too far, and then when you hung up the phone, it'd go and like curl up into a big hot mess. Yeah. Well, imagine that with an extension cord that's about four times thicker. And a lot more rigid and a lot less flexible in winter time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they do sell winter uh, winter extension cords, you know, the blue ones that don't get that stiff <sighs> in the cold. I'll tell you one. This one has like, um, 
like a, 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 a multi multi Peroni's disease. <laughs> You'll never get it straight. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to take it into the house and heat it up. It does it in the summer too. It's so crazy. It's like oh yeah. I mean, they, they, uh, uh, you know, my my fifty foot ones never do that. It's so crazy. So 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 guys, size sometimes is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Length is not always good on cords. No. Straightness. <laughs> Well, a yeah. lot of things you don't want to crooked anything yeah yeah so uh but so all right um well so yeah but i highly recommend if anybody hasn't seen either one of these sequels uh in in a franchise check them out beneath planet of the apes is wonderful uh future world is wonderful and future world actually had some very very early computer graphics in it too some right. of the, I, they, 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 yeah they say it was the first major major motion picture to use cgi Oh, okay, okay, that's right. So, God, why do I feel like we've talked about this? Maybe, maybe I'm programmed to believe a false memory that we talked about this before. Oh God, I wish I was a robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true. My I wouldn't arm. hurt as much as I do. Right I hear now. you, sister. So, uh, all right. So, the last thing I want to play uh, again, we we already played one trailer for a Farrah Fawcett uh, sci-fi movie from. 1980 Saturn 3 can you guys guess what trailer I'm going to play from 1976 another movie she was in can't think of it offhand oh it fits in so much with the last two movies but it's the first one uh, I don't think there was a second one but there was a TV series here I'm just going to play it it's a great trailer just imagine a world where you will hold your entire future in the palm of your hand when a tiny glowing crystal will guide you through an existence in which each day is more wonderful than the last, where it will be possible for you to obtain the fulfillment of every fantasy, the satisfaction of every vanity, the absolute attainment of every wish. Go on. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents the Saul David production of Logan's Run. A fantastic journey through a world beyond imagination. Welcome to the 23rd century. The perfect world of total pleasure. Imagine a world in which you need never be alone. You touch a switch, turn a dial, and the perfect lover steps into your arms. Every pleasure is yours to experience. Runner! There's just one catch. When the tiny crystal in the palm of your hand flashes its final message, your time is up. Michael York is Logan. Run, Logan! Policeman in a perfect world. No! Trained to track down runners. Run, Logan! Until he is forced to run himself. friend i understand we all go crazy once in a while but she's a runner and it's over box an incredible being more than human more than machine diabolical guardian of the gateway to freedom pretty crappy or Logan robot. and the woman who loves him Five, 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 five
face like that before. That must be the look of of being old. <laughs> MGM takes you into a new age of adventure in the first motion picture of the 23rd century. Logan's Run. It begins where imagination ends. Yep. And if you buy it... Pawtucket Patriot Beer. If you buy it, hot women will have sex in your backyard. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <no>. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, uh, I was making... I, I was looking for a clip that I used to have. It was a clip from Logan's Run where uh, the... the uh, What's the guy who does the lead? He's, he's like, let's have sex. <laughs> but I couldn't find it, so I was like... Uh, I played that. Um, cause it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty cheesy and sleazy movie. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it did have, it, it was good ish, but man, I think Logan's run is way overrated. I enjoyed it. Um, they are supposedly gonna revitalize it. They're supposed to be making a new version of it, but yeah, I've heard a lot of talk about that. They did do a television series of it with a completely different cast. Uh, but I don't think it lasted very long. Um, and it, uh, let me let me. Yeah, but as soon that. as that trailer started, I knew exactly what movie it was. Ah. As soon as they talked about the crystal in the hand, I'm like, "Yep, I know that movie." <laughs> there you go. There you go. So yeah, Logan's Run TV series uh, came out in night from '77 to '78 uh, to February 6th. It, it, it got canceled February 6th, 1978. So uh, we're going to celebrate the anniversary of that cancellation in two days. <laughs> um, and uh, that cast had Gregory Harrison, Heather uh, Menzies, Donald Moffat. And, uh, and Randy Powell. So, um, but yeah, so that was, uh, uh, thank you, Tennessee. Knock it off now. Okay. Um, sorry, Tennessee's making all kinds of racket in the background. Uh, but yeah, so that was, uh, oh, how many episodes w were there? Episodes, uh, 14 episodes. And, uh, oh, I love this. The last one's called Stargate. The runners encounter aliens from a much hotter planet who need parts <laughs> for <laughs> from Rem to bring others uh, of their kind to the Earth. Why don't they say on their planet it's hotter than ours? Yeah, kidding. So, <laughs> going with, the, <laughs> going with the, the, the sleazy theme of the sleazy 70s uh, sci-fi. Um... But yeah, so uh, Joe, what are your thoughts on Logan's Run? You know, I, I've seen it a couple times, not not recently, but uh, yeah, I was never it was never a big big fan of it. It was interesting. It was like entertaining. It was like you know that candy that you have laying around, and you're just hungry, and so you eat it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> but you, you don't got, enjoy it. You got a couple old like butters, Brock's butterscotch candies, and you're like, yeah, oh, I want there's something nothing else around. I want something sweet. I'm gonna go ahead and eat these old, you know. Uh, then they've started to, yeah. they're so old, they started to go a little sticky in the wrapper too. So you're like, yeah, Whatever. yeah. So that's so. that's Logan's <laughs> Yes. You got a roll of peppermint lifesavers, half eaten, laying around. 
<laughs> in your and you, you find them in your in your winter coat pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got lint on it and well, stuff. And some bits of tobacco. Yeah, you got to take it off. And... Yeah. When, so. when actually, what you want is a, a good tray of pepperoni pizza. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a, that's a new Planet of the Apes movie. Uh, right. so, <laughs> but anyway, well, we're, we're we're oh gosh, it's ten ten oh one. We gotta wrap things up. So uh, let me start running our end credits here. Of course, music as as always provided by Kill the Hippies. I'm sorry, I've neglected to mention that they do all of our incidental music for uh, intros, outros, and bumpers, um, and to keep it legal because they're independent musicians, not not. They're not beholden to the the music uh, unions, and I want to extend, of course, as always, my gratitude uh, to Miles for bringing uh, some fun uh, history. Uh, and you know, and again, I love that he's expounding upon the hunt for Red October, and he's going to continue that for next week. That's that's a pretty fun little thing. I'm I'm glad I might have inspired him a little bit for that. So that's cool. Yeah, it's one of his favorite stories. So he 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 like he likes that sort of stuff. Excellent. So, all right, Michelle, what is your uh, what do you got uh, for the end of the program? Um, I just wish everybody out there that's in that cold weather to stay warm. Um, hopefully, you're not having power grid problems like Texas is once again. Oh dear so. lord! <laughs> Time for the and the ice ice running through icicles in your light fixtures. Yeah, and I, I will not tell you all that we had to turn on the AC again today. So there you go. <laughs> Thanks for not telling us that you had to turn yeah. on the AC today, Michelle. Thanks yeah. for not telling us about about that. <laughs> See, I'm I, 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 I'm I'm ever present and love you too. Love you too. <laughs> uh, but, well, sorry, I just thought it would be funny. No, it is funny. I'm 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 playing into the the gag. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I got, I was so upset. I'm like, I don't, I wanted the cold weather to continue. You know what I did on par with what you did? I ordered new snow boots uh, today on Amazon. So, <laughs> oh, very cool. I was like, I don't have boots tall enough to walk through two or three feet of snow. Uh, so, so I got thigh highs, Joe. Uh, yeah, I have them. <laughs> just ordered a pair of insulated hip waders yep it's so. standard equipment here yeah uh all right yep. joe what do you what do you got well uh i guess you heard about rudy giuliani being the mass and the mass oh, dear uh, god i did uh, like, <laughs> yeah, i'm well, so glad i stopped watching that show there, there he is Me too. uh we're gonna be there he is we're gonna sunday we're gonna be looking at other right wing nuts that are gonna be on this season i'm gonna let you guess who they are Oh, and, uh, okay. <laughs> so there you go. There's the short. The masked oh Rudy. <laughs> Very nice. They didn't tell nice. us what he, what he is. Uh, don't forget, Svanguli tomorrow night, It, the terror from from beyond space. Oh, nice. I think I have a copy of yeah. that for sale on my store. It's a classic. Come yeah. on. Marshall Thompson. Oh. oh, Joe, you know what he just sold today on VHS? What? The sci black and white sci-fi classic Invasion of the Saucer Men starring uh, uh, Frank Gorshin. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and Michelle, you'll be happy to know we are still the the premier scream selling store on eBay because I just sold for like $65 
a $10 copy DVD of Scream 1 through 3 with a $4 mask and two, two, uh, two $1 boxes of candy for $65. Oh, nice. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> to somebody in another country. So they had to pay like $30 shipping. <laughs> so, oh, God. Anyway, uh, for real, real, we got to we gotta go because I've, I've been playing extra music at the end of the show. Uh, but, uh, anyway, I hope everybody stays, um, uh, stays warm. Don't get too chilled, uh, out there. That guy needs to chill out. No, no, I need to warm up. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, ev but everybody be considerate, uh, of one another. And you know what? Um, if you can help somebody, help somebody. I've helped a couple people now get their cars unstuck. Which sucks because uh, I didn't have the new boots. <laughs> so, but uh, and and you know and do your best to to try and talk to your neighbors who might be isolated. I've been trying to talk to my one neighbor uh, who lives by himself and he's in his late sixties, maybe maybe just seventy, something like that. I've been trying to go over there and talk to him. And actually, Joe, I. I I, I saw that he was using, uh, he had an electric snowblower too, and I didn't know it. I thought he had a gas-powered one. And then mm -hmm. he, he turned it off for a second, and he was like, and I was like, hey, you got an electric one too. And then he waved me over, and I'd already been outside for like two hours, and, mm -hmm. and my feet and hands were frozen. But one of our other neighbors, her car was stuck in the snow, and he tried to push her out, but he needed more muscle so we both got on either side of the car and got her out and then i had a nice conversation with him and uh in the whole time i had in a bag from the garage hanging from my wrist that vhs copy of invasion of the saucer men and yeah. and he knows that i sell movies and i was like buzz look what i just sold and i showed him and then he was like you know i got a whole bunch of dvds maybe you can help me sell them and i was like maybe i'll come take a look at your collection so, there you go. But uh, but he was like, but then he said, "Do you ever sell them without the art or the boxes?" And I was like, "Nah." <laughs> no, nobody wants no. those. No, I mean, it, only if, yeah, it really doesn't happen. Anyway, everybody have a great night, uh, and yeah, uh, try and help a neighbor in need if you can, and uh, stay away from the anti-vaxxers too. Because I got a couple of those on my street and I will not help them. No, sir. Because you know what? Evolution doesn't take prisoners. Yep. <laughs> Good night, everybody.